0: VOCM presents Open Line The opinions expressed
1: on this show are not necessarily those of the station and now your host Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, April the 17th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's the producer of the program. Let's get the week off to a flying start that requires your participation. So if you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue 709 273 5211 or elsewhere. It's toll free long distance 1 888 590 VOCM. Which is 86-26. Well, a bit of a grey day here to kick off the work week. But a burst of heat and sun yesterday for a... Of the day, but what I did notice in great numbers was motorcycles and cyclists. So you know, just when we change the seasons, we all have to just very carefully consider the changing seasons, road conditions, and the numbers of people that will be out on the bikes, whether it be motorcycles and/or bicycles. They were really out there everywhere yesterday, up and down Logie Bay Road a couple of times, running a couple of errands, and they're there. So we just have to adjust our mindset to remind ourselves that they're there because there is some risk associated with the vehicles and the interaction with the cyclist and or the motorcyclist, so keep it in mind. All right, well, they jammed them into into the Harder Memorial Recreation Complex Friday and Saturday for the first two games of the Harder Memorial Championships. So an hour before puck drop, they were absolutely jammed into the rink, standing room only, and a pretty good uh, first couple of games in the series here. Many people anticipated the Southern Shore Breakers, of course, representing the East, would make quick work of the West Coast champs, the Deer, Deer Lake Red Wings. But a 4-1 win and a 4-3 win it looks pretty close. The shot clock maybe doesn't reflect what the eventual scores were, but if you were in the burn... And you want to recount what you saw? Let's do it. And of course, the Shore, they've got six herders. Dare Lake has a couple of herders. The defending champions are indeed the Southern Shore Breakers. So good series on the go, which is encouraging. And not so encouraging. Yesterday, watched watched most of the final, the championship game between the United States and Canada for the Women's World Championship. 6-3 loss. The Americans took it on and denied Canada three straight World Championship titles. The score is not really necessarily reflective of the game, though, all the same. Uh, Hillary Knight, the captain of the Americans, she scored a hat-trick. A couple on the power play late. A couple of bad penalties. We took a tripping penalty and a delay game penalty. Really unfortunate, but Canada loses 6-3 to the Americans. And, of course, Mercer and Newhook, they kick off their quest for the Stanley Cup as the playoffs begin tonight. We're always up for a bit of a hockey chat. And another quick one. Darryl Williams. Darryl's from Labrador. He played a lot of minor hockey in Mount Pearl. I would have played against him as a member of the Blades. He's been an assistant coach in the NHL for quite some time now. Uh, starting back in 2021, he moved on to work with the Philadelphia Flyers as an assistant coach. They fired their coach last week. Williams assumed the head coaching duty for the first time, so that's pretty cool. Darrell Williams, a head coach in the NHL. Great stuff. He's a great fella, a really nice man. Uh, Guzhu, man, I don't know if you watched the game against uh, Team Kui in the semi-final, so with just seconds on the clock when Kui released his final stone, I think there was like maybe 10 seconds left. He completes a slash-double takeout to get three points to win 7-6. It was a heartbreak of a loss. But overall, through the Grand Slam season, Team Guzhu are the Pinties' champions. They accumulated more points than any other team, so they've won that particular title. But a really unfortunate loss to a terrific shot from Cooey. Anyway, and of course, over the weekend on April 15th, Jackie Robinson Day where every major league ball player wore his number 42 in the competition, and it was on this date in history, 1947, that Robinson got his first hit. It was a bunt single for Jackie Robinson Day over the weekend. Okay, snow crab harvesters are going to be protesting outside the Confederation building this morning at 11 o'clock. We all know the issue here surrounding the price per pound, right? So at 2.20, the harvesters say there's simply not enough money in it to go for the crab. So I'm not 100% sure what they want the provincial government to do on this front. You know, we've heard petitions being circulated regarding the ease with which people or the difficulty with which people are able uh, to transfer enterprises or to get into the business, but on the price per pound. So I'm just guessing, and the FFAW are welcome to call and put some uh, clarity to this for us. Do they want the government simply to encourage or to mandate or to ensure that both sides go back to the table to come up with a price that can be livable for both sides and see some profit associated with the landing of Snow Crab this year? It's an extremely lucrative business, a very lucrative business. a species, but the market seems to have softened up to the point where 220s where they landed. Now, the price-setting panel themselves said the quiet part out loud: this is probably not the right price, because when you go into a system that seems to be pretty deeply flawed, where both sides put forward a price and the panel picks one or the other, no compromise, no negotiations, they just pick the 220 or the 310 or whatever was offered or re- requested by the FAW. But they're going to protest today, and. If someone, Mr. Spingle, Mr. Pretty, or whoever would like to call this morning, we're happy to take that call. I'm not really sure we want the government too deeply involved in setting the price for anything out of the water. But anyway, if you want to take it on? Let's go. And also, this morning, we're going to get an update from Chris Aylward from the Public Sector Alliance uh, Union Group. So uh, we used to say PSAC. He tells us it's more appropriately said PSAC. Fair enough, sir. The PSAC. So there's still a bit of confusion out there. So it, this is all about working conditions and most notably pay the demand if you listen to the canadian federation of independent business they say that the request from psac would add up to about a billion dollars of additional money paid to public sector workers over the course of the next 3 years i'm not sure how accurate that number is but that's what they're saying so there's also a little bit of confusion about the requirement for notice Now, people keep saying that it's 72 hours notice required, but inside the 124,000 PSAC workers, they are legislated under the Federal Public Sector Labor Relations Act, which does not require the union to provide the employer with a 72-hour strike notice. They can go at the drop of a hat. There are some thoughts that they may start with some work-to-rule protests and some rolling strikes as opposed to a full and immediate walkout. So there's 155,000 public sector workers who have been uh, given their leadership a strike mandate. We don't know, I guess we'll know a lot more when Mr. Aylward speaks today. But you wonder where the level of public support might be. You know, if they can negotiate a better wage, then good for them. That's how the unions operate. Collective bargaining is one of the hallmarks or pillars of the organized labor movement. But when the thought is that their wages aren't keeping up with inflation, I think if we look across the board, the vast majority of Canadians can say the exact same thing. So I don't know where the public comes down on this, but there will absolutely, if 155,000 public sector workers are off the job in some form of work stoppage, which would be the largest work stoppage for federal employees in the last three decades, there will be a lot of services that are absolutely compromised or impacted. One being at CRA. So the CFIB, once again in a news release this morning, is hoping for an extension to the deadline for filing your taxes, which is on the 1st of May. They say with small business, if CRA is not there working in full as per normal, it will add a level of stress, anxiety, and the inability to get answers and taxes adjudicated this year. So. I think there's a lot on the line here. I think maybe it gets downplayed and not a lot of focus until it comes to pass, possibly, but we'll find out a bit more from Mr. Aylward this morning. I believe that update is coming at 10.30. And that 10.30, that might be uh, Eastern time, is it, Dave? Yeah, I just read 10.30, but generally, when we read those news stories, they use Eastern time. Okay, so you want to take that on, let's go. And this one here, you know, for some, it might be a bit of an eye-roller. You know, we try to put out the news, and the information required some things that may put Canadians at risk, and people in this province at risk, and some of them are very fundamental. And we're all getting so used to it that we might be numb to it, and that's the scam. But the numbers from the Canadian Anti-Fraud Agency are really quite something. In 2022, 56,000 Canadians were victimized by a scammer. They lost some, pardon me, $530 million in losses. At the hands of the scammers. So that's all according, of course, to the Canadian Anti Fraud Center. The year prior, the losses were about 384 million, so it's getting worse. So, as much as it might be an eye roller in some corners, it's absolutely getting worse. And if you, uh, if you take them at face value and 56,000 Canadians and $530 million of losses last year, you can probably comfortably double that. Because not everybody comes forward. You know, whether it be the level of embarrassment that they were separated from their hard-earned money and whether it be fall prey to some of the more clever and nefarious scams like the grandparent scam or what have you. So, yes, you might think, look, Patty, we know the scammers are out there. People know they're out there. But we're still seeing over half a billion dollars in losses. So whoever you think might be most vulnerable in your social circle of friends or inside your family, it's probably worth just that very gentle reminder that you have to be uber careful because the numbers are undeniable. And those numbers are absolutely 100% underreported. All right, how we doing out there, Dave? I have a sore throat here today. All right, one thing that used to be all the rage in political debate was whether or not a public-private partnership was in the best interest of the taxpayer. For governments, they obviously will be attractive because it, you know it's the short-term pain is lessened when some of the burden and the responsibility and the authority is in conjunction with the private sector. Of course, the private sector loves it because government contracts are highly coveted, we'll put, we'll put it. But it kind of went off the radar and I'm not really sure why because they're becoming all the rage. How many public infrastructure contracts are, are being dealt with inside the P3 envelope? Whether it be replacement for the Waterford and the potential replacement of St. Clair's and the replacement for Her Majesty's Penitentiary and the long-term care facilities, which are of note because we know how long the opening was delayed because of the problems inside those two out in central, in particular, the two sixty beds, one in Gander, one in Grand Falls-Windsor. So we try to put these things on the radar because. It doesn't really have an impact today, necessarily. But what we see is that it may indeed cost more in the long run. Good for government today, and governments will change hands, but when the 30-year window has been closed, then we find out the hard way that it probably costs more in the long run. So yes, it might feel good for all sides entering into these contracts, entering into the construction of these needed infrastructure uh, facilities, but just kind of went away, which is kind of strange. Anyway, let's keep going. Let's go to Ottawa. So in the highly anticipated testimony coming from the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, Katie Telford, on Friday, and as we said on Friday, I wasn't expecting to learn a whole lot more about what went on, and that's regarding what the Prime Minister knew and when he knew it regarding foreign interference into the elections in 2019 and 2021. Miss Telford, often said that she was unable to speak to some of the sensitive material that was part of the briefings, whether it comes from the National Security and Intelligence Officer and or from the Director of CSIS who have both testified in front of the Parliamentary Committee. So we really didn't learn a whole, whole lot. You know, on that front, when Mr. Poliev, the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, refused to get a briefing so that he can be informed as to exactly what was entailed in the formal or informal briefings, and he doesn't want to do it, And basically, so he can continue to speak about this matter the way he has in the past. But what we did find out is that the Prime Minister has been briefed at least six times since 2018 on these matters. What's not uh, evident is exactly what he was briefed on. So it's fine to have that number of six briefings, and it's important. And obviously, if the Prime Minister wasn't getting briefings on important matters, like the protection and the integrity of Canadian institutions, then would be a colossal failure. So, yes... The committee was given the document from the Privy Council Office just the morning of. So the mor- Friday morning they got this document itemizing these formal briefings just in time for Ms. Telford to appear in front of them that afternoon. So timing is not great. But what I will go on to also add to this is if Katie Telford was going to offer the testimony the way she did on Friday, then why, why, why did the Liberals inflict so much self-harm by this stupid filibuster that the members of the committee entertained, by the prime minister himself not ensuring that Katie Telford testified right away when requested by the parliamentary committee, because we didn't learn anything. So a bit of political damage, which just leads people to think and to say that, well, there's a cover up ongoing with all the delay in Miss Telford's testimony, because if that's all we were going to get, then there was really no need to withhold her testimony for as long as they did. But if you want to take it on and or whether it be David Johnston and the special rapporteur, his report is going to be back in the hands of the federal government next month. The prime minister has committed to the fact that if Johnston, former governor general, if he says public inquiry is the next step, the government says they will follow his recommendations. And once again, I'm not so sure they're playing this very wisely. Because if there is not a public inquiry, those who think there's a problem will never be convinced otherwise. Those who think there's nothing to see here, folks, will never be convinced otherwise. But what I think we really need is simply the truth. As simple as that. Because it doesn't matter if you're a conservative, a liberal, or an NDP or whoever. Erosion in faith of the integrity of Canadian institutions is to our collective detriment. We just need to know what went on and who knew what and what was done to limit foreign interference as best possible. Whether it be the Chinese, the Russians, the Iranians, who cares? But let's try to see if we can get everyone on the same page on that one. All right. We have heard from the Federation of Labor and their uh, president, uh, Jessica McCormick, regarding pay equity legislation. And they say it needs to be overhauled. It's not working the way that it should be. There's a bunch of recommendations that they put forward. They've been unable at this moment to meet with the provincial government to see if there's any opportunity to see some amendments to the pay equity legislation. Here's a couple. They say the first of the amendments is that the document published by the Newfoundland Labrador Federation of Labor is to explicitly enshrine pay equity and pay transparency as a fundamental human rights in the law. They also want the legislation to include trade unions at the negotiations table, develop an independent oversight agency to investigate contraventions of the law and enforce punishment. And she also wants to see, or the Federation of Labor also wants to see this not only with the public sector, but also with the private sector which I don't know how that would work. But then you go on to what people refer to as the pay inequity, is if you're working in the same setting with the same experience and qualifications and seniority or whatever else, educational background, then everybody should be getting paid the same, regardless of your man or woman. But some of the jobs that are dominated by women, whether it be home care, early childhood educators, in retail or what have you certainly that contributes to the disparity in pay but miss mccormick is welcome on the show to talk about the federation's position on the pay equity legislation as is your call or your opinion on whatever you want to talk about anything under the sun we're on twitter or vocem open line follow us there Our email address is at VOCM.com. oh and i have been told that the psac update is indeed at 10 30 local time thank you very much to april so we heard last week from a Newfoundland Labrador Hydro CEO Jennifer Williams that essentially Muskrat Falls, having passed the 700 megawatt test and still with a 900 megawatt test to come, she says essentially it's commissioned in full. Even though adding some caveats with still a newer version of software yet to come, not everybody is entirely convinced that it's working the way it's intended to and we don't have a final cost. Ted Sullivan is one of those who still has questions. He joins us right after the break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number one. Say good morning to the gentleman behind the Uncle Gnarly blog. That's Des Sullivan. Good morning, Des. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How, how are you doing? Not too bad this morning. Thank you. How about yourself?
2: Just just great, sir. Glad to hear it. I, uh, I, I thought the, this morning might be a good opportunity to discuss... Uh, uh... ceo jennifer williams uh, reference to uh... Um, muskrat being about ready to be commissioned um, and and i actually uh... hoped that she was right and uh, and i had hoped to in reading the story uh... Would have we would have wanted to see all the assurances uh... that suggest that the facility is ready but I'm just not seeing them, Paddy.
1: Well, I guess it's encouraging if people are hoping for the final commissioning and to see the project working as it intended. And, you know, a couple of successful 700 megawatt tests, that's all good. But you say there's still big questions. Where do we start with some of the areas that you still are skeptical about?
2: Well, the, when you read... Uh, hydro's own submission on the 13th of March to the to the PUB. Uh, you 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 have to read between the lines a little. But number one, as, you, as you've indicated uh, in your uh, opening comment, uh, that. Uh, there's another version of the software awaited. Uh, number two, the uh, uh, the line has only been tested at the 700 megawatt level, and uh, they are awaiting tests at the 900 megawatt level. And those tests have to be performed in cold weather, cold weather and won't be done until uh, the winter of twenty three twenty four and now uh... Th- that's a substantial Deficiency, in my mind, especially given uh, the nature of the problems uh, that have that that they have incurred on the LIL over the last couple of years. So simply running a couple of tests at 700 megawatts and telling us everything is fine that we should be optimistic, that won't do for a facility uh, that we are going to start paying somewhere around 13.5 billion dollars uh, for. Uh, you know i i am not an engineer but but i think my even my standard my standards are a little higher than that uh, but but if you read other aspects of uh hydro's report to the p u b you'll see the reference as well to the synchronous condensers which they've had enormous problems with at at uh, at Holyrood and uh, or at Soldier's Pond, I should say. And uh, the fact is that in order to make them work, they've had to install what's referred to as elliptical bearings. Now, that uh, for people who who aren't sure what that really means, it, it, it what it what it fundamentally is, is that if you have a cylinder that won't turn, if you if you make a turn by putting it off center, uh, as in an oval. Or, or like an egg, uh, you 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 force it to turn in that fashion. But everyone agrees, including Hydro, that it is not a permanent fix. Uh, so you, you can't you can't tell me that a thirteen, fourteen billion dollar facility. With a uh, a cobbled uh, uh, resolution to one of the most important components of your system, the whole the the, the part that uh, that uh, assures grid stability and that keeps you keeps the system from 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 uh, from kicking out, uh, you uh, you you have to do better better and and hydro essentially uh, said that uh, uh, efforts are underway to resolve those. Issues. Issues and we'll keep on monitoring them. Well uh, uh that gives me a pretty bad feeling, uh frankly, uh, Patty. That's 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 not That's not acceptable.
1: Let's take take a couple of these uh, one at a time. So in the pending 900 megawatt test, which I assume can't happen until the load demand uh, season makes sense, which would be next winter. So Mm -hmm. would the 900 megawatts include? Like they talk about 824 megawatts at Muskrat Falls. Even though with Mm -hmm. power loss, what have you, I don't think we'll ever see 824 coming in full. But does that mean, or reading between the lines, or what do we know about the 900? Does that include recall power from the Upper Churchill, for instance?
2: Uh, well, they in order to do the test, they may have to do that. Sure. Uh, and, and that would be fine. I mean the 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 issue is making sure that the system uh, is running and ready uh, to be able to accept that that level of power, and It was always contemplated that we might bring the balance of recall power over the line. Mm-hmm. In fact, in, in, in many ways, uh, hydro <clears throat> assumed that uh, in, the, in the context of uh, of the whole viability. Question of Muskrat Falls. So yes, uh, uh, the 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 line is supposed to be ready uh, or uh, uh, capable of of transmitting that level, uh, and uh, that's what you paid for. So my view is that's what we should get, uh, not not one that might give us 700 megawatts. Now, that, there there's, there are other questions around that as well, but bear, bear in mind there are other the the, the 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 tricky things about what we're asked to understand is that uh, the LIL typically has not performed all that well. For instance, the the, the CEO will say that there have been no outages. Uh, reported uh, for March. But the fact is that power coming over the LIL has largely, over the last number of months, what has uh, come to the island has been largely coming at night uh, during uh, at, at, at low levels and at a time when it was most unlikely that the LIL would go down and you'd, you'd have outages. So uh, is that... The, the test that we want for reliability i i i really don't think so uh, there's i mean there's 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 the, the other aspect of this is that we know that there's only three generators running at muskrat falls right now there's a fourth down for repairs mm-hmm. well you know some engineers uh have queried, queried whether the the problems with uh, with the one that's down may be applicable to the others as well because don't forget they were all installed roughly at the same time by the same installer, and uh, you know are there other issues we don't know. But again, uh, it, with with uh, a brand new facility, uh, one uh, one generator out at this point in time. Well, while, while we're discussing full tri- full uh, full. Um, uh, uh, Full commissioning uh, seems rather inconsistent with the whole idea. So there, are, there are quite there are quite a number of issues. And and you know the other point I would make is that uh, when Jennifer uh, discussed this recently, she indicated that oh well uh, we are finally uh, you know we're, we're we're we are reducing our reliance on Holyrood. And uh, basically getting to this stage, quote-unquote, allows us to eat away at the final 10% of the energy that is, uh, that is uh, generating or that is uh, powering the Newfoundland grid from Holyrood. Well, the fact is that Holyrood is going to be required uh, for a long, long time. We're going to have to pay for all that fuel. And the other key point is that while we're gilding the lily here, we should remember that when we have Holyrood going, we can't eat away at any final 10% because those generators are not designed to, uh, to, uh, uh, to have their load uh, varied uh, as some of the more modern uh, generators do. So there's, as you can see, you can, you, can, you can spend a lot of time and there are a lot of issues involved uh, debating whether we're even close at all to a commissioning stage. But clearly, uh, hydro has not told us all the things we need to know.
1: Well, I think they've said some of the quiet parts out loud. When talking about reliability, for instance, to install an eighth generator out of beta spare and to keep Holyrood running. So that would add up to about a billion dollars in cost, but $520 million plus out of beta spare and whatever it's going to cost to keep Holyrood up and running. Now, there are suggestions that maybe we can take advantage of this new potential for hydrogen to replace some of the power, if not all of the power generated Holyrood. I don't know the ins and outs of that one. But there's a couple of things that I'm still a little bit confused about. Miss Williams also said that there's a newer version of the software coming, as if we all knew that. I didn't know that. And also, this one, I think, for ratepayers, and this is people's number one concern, is how much I'm going to be paying on my bill. She she said they're still hammering out what people refer to a rate mitigation plan, as opposed to we were told that was done in full. So that was a couple of years ago, and that most recent uh, rate mitigation issue was some $5.2 billion, 3.2 stemming from revenues at Hibernia, a billion-dollar loan, and a billion-dollar addition to the federal loan guarantee. We were all under the uh, the thought that that was completed, that's a done deal. Apparently, we're still hammering it out, which is uh, is news to me.
2: Well, I have a suspicion. Uh, that the uh, rush to get this thing sanctioned uh, has uh, a very close relationship with uh, freeing up mitigation money. Uh, very likely, the feds are, are not proceeding uh, with their end of the, bar- end of the bargain until uh, com- uh, commissioning is accepted uh, by the uh, by the independent engineer who ostensibly answers to the federal government and. Uh- uh but i guess i would add that we should not be playing that song because we have not been told whether commissioning in this way in a, in a, a commissioning essentially an unfinished facility uh, adds to the risk of further costs to the Newfoundland ratepayer in the years ahead for things that have not been covered off on on this project already, and I'm referring to uh, the possibility of further problems in uh, in Goose Bay on on the generators. I'm referring to the to, the well-known problem of the uh, of the uh, synchronous condensers, highly highly expensive. Of items, are we going to run and commission this thing? Are we letting uh, in uh, GE and and others off the hook in 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 their obligations to make sure that the components that they were contracted to install and to operate perfectly uh, are 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 they off the hook in terms of making those work in the future? Uh, those th- those issues have not been addressed at all, and uh, I think that it's high time, frankly, that if, if, if uh, Jennifer Williams is not prepared to do it, we do have a minister responsible for energy, I believe, and uh, he hasn't really said a word at all uh, throughout this process. He, you know, we elect politicians as well to uh, inform us and to keep uh, to keep uh, government uh, operating in the sense that the, the crown corporations like Hydro are expected to to operate efficiently and to answer uh to a certain mandate. Um, we we've heard nothing on this stuff at all and there's clearly a whole bunch of issues, uh, large issues, you know, uh, issues that have big price tags attached to them uh that we need clarity on and uh, if we're talking about commissioning Muskrat Falls uh, let's you know I'm I'm quite content to skip the party. I'd rather just simply have a really top-notch uh high-quality facility for my thirteen and a half billion million.
1: And we don't even know what the final price tag is. That won't come <laughs> We on. really
2: don't know what the price, final yeah, price which tag is. Which is, no. is a
1: pretty big one. You know, that's going to require whatever outstanding paperwork is yet to be settled between Hydro, the province, and the federal government. Uh, Des, as usual, appreciate your time this morning.
2: Uh, nice to talk to you, Paddy. Have a good day. You too. Bye bye. Bye now.
1: All right, uh, let's go and take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about the crab concerns, and that's with Clifford Small. He's the Conservative Party member for Costa Bay Central, Notre Dame. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the CPC member for the Costa Bay Central, Notre Dame. That's Clifford Small. Good morning, Clifford. You're on the air. Good morning. How are you this morning, Paddy? Not too bad at all. How about you?
0: Oh, pretty good. Just getting ready to start this week here. Uh, yeah, I wanted to call in today and. Uh I haven't had a whole lot to say about the crab dispute that's going on. There's not a whole lot that that I can do from a, a federal perspective, other than keep doing what I've been doing from back since uh, October. I I warned the Minister of Fisheries back on October 22nd that this was going to go down the way it's going down, and uh, she wasn't aware then of of uh, of the situation. But since then, I've I've had several opportunities to lobby the japanese to uh, approach the minister of trade and the minister of global affairs it's been ongoing but so far we haven't been able to uh, access any more any meaningful access to the japanese market than we've had before and uh, i read over the weekend that the russian Catches have exceeded last year's catches for the first 12 weeks of the season. So I don't know where they're selling their crab, but chances are a good chunk of it is going into the Japanese market where our crab should be going instead of the Japanese supporting the uh, Russian war effort in Ukraine, Patty.
1: Yeah, I'm told that the the major market for our snow crab is the United States. So what are you asking Global Affairs to do? Because we don't have a whole lot of levers we can pull that would make the Japanese buy crab from our waters or anybody else. So what are you asking them to actually do specifically?
0: Well, once upon a time, if there was a decrease in the Alaskan crab quota, we knew that we'd have a good price for our crab in Newfoundland Labrador. This year the alaskan uh, snow crab quota is cut to zero and we've had the, the the fishing industry is looking at the worst return for for crab uh, biggest drop in history so yes you're right the big, the biggest market is the usa but if there's 5000 10000 20000 tons of whatever it is of crab being purchased from Russia in a time when the rest of the world is sacrificing and paying the price for war on Ukraine, the people of Japan should as well. They're major G7 partners and allies. We protect them from uh, North Korean uh, uh, missiles and, and aggression from China. They should do whatever they can in this time to support their allies.
1: I mean, I've got no argument there with you know not having sanctions in place, unlike the rest of their allied world inside the G20, is curious, I will call it. But I'm not so sure what we can do in insofar as enforcing goes. And I, I'll be curious to hear exactly what they're trying to accomplish today with the protests at Confederation Building. If it's simply about hoping that the premier or the minister responsible brings both sides back to the table to try to negotiate a different price, because the price-setting panel itself said this is probably not the right price because we have a fundamentally flawed system here. Picking one. of the other shows no appetite for understanding what the market can bear as opposed to what one side wants, which I think are two different things in this case. So we'll see where it all lands. The landed value in places like Quebec is not too far from the 220 that they landed on in this province, so we'll see where it goes. I just want to ask you uh, something else, too, about uh, the fishery. And you've been speaking out about seals. What exactly are you suggesting should be done?
0: We We need markets for seals, Patty. Number one. We've got to have a commitment from the federal government uh, to get in get into countries where it's possible to sell our products. I talk to people in the in the industry, and they tell me that the market in the U.S. is just tremendous. Now, people say we can't get into the American market because of the Marine Mammal Protection Act. Mm-hmm. Well, the Marine Mammal Protection Act has been amended in in the United States to allow for the removal of nuisance seals. And they've taken, or so, sorry, in this case, it's sea lions in the Columbia River. They've taken thousands of them out of the Columbia River. So if if it's possible in some way, if we had the right advocacy and someone that cares, and uh, global affairs has a big part to play in this, And we need commitment from the, from the, it starts in the prime minister's office. So we need a commitment to take on this issue. If we had the markets, we've got the quota, we've got the harvesters. We could bring the numbers down and we could take advantage of it economically. You know, um, it's not going to be easy. And sometimes you, you have to shake your head and maybe say, well, maybe, maybe, you know, at the end of the day, maybe we're going to have to have a call. Who knows? But for now, Call us out is not is not a a viable option. We're definitely not advocating for that. Okay. And I did see a piece the other day where a a few words that you said. Well, what's Mr. Small's plan and talking about seals on on, uh, on on our salmon rivers? Well, there's a piece of legislation that was brought in a couple of years ago that blocks us from removing nuisance seals. Well, they've had to remove the the nuisance uh, sea lions in the in the Columbia River. Started off as one, two, three. Over about twenty years, it got up to thousands of them because they're smart and it's learned behavior. And we're starting to see it here in our own in our salmon rivers. And if we don't start addressing it now, we're going to get to the point where these seals remember where they got a, a nice meal of uh, salmon the year before, and they go back, and it'll exponentially grow, and eventually our precious Atlantic salmon uh, stocks will be wiped out by seals simply hanging out in the estuaries and going up into the rivers. I've got numerous, numerous accounts and pictures of seals 30, 40, 50 kilometers inland. So something has to be done.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can't even go to the United States with a seal skin purse. I mean, let alone sell seal products, whether it be uh, the pelt or the meat or the omega-3 oils or what have you. If I had any say, which of course I do not, I would start talking about the oils because they're really popular and they're in demand and the seal oil, omega-3, has a different property than many others out there. So I'd start with that stuff because not everyone wants to eat seal. In fact, it's very much, it's a taste that you have to, it has to grow on you. I don't know how much that is going to be, you know sent elsewhere not even many people in the province like to eat seal and i mean i don't want to generalize because a lot of people they can't wait to get a flipper pie but it's not as common or as popular as possibly it once was but i do appreciate your time this morning clifford nice to have you on all right thank you patty have a wonderful day you too take care bye-bye that's Clifford small cpc member for cent uh costa bay central notre dame you know some people tell me every time they hear the seal conversation that it's over the seal conversation is absolutely over well it's not really But the key, as I think Mr. Small rightfully points out, is that the political will for a call is just probably not there for a variety of reasons, even though some countries kind of talk out of both sides of their mouth. They do control them in Scotland. There are sea line issues in California and in the Colorado River. So, you know, they want to both ways. But what do we actually do to counteract that? How can a market be expanded, for instance, in the United States? I mean, there are market opportunities in China. Maybe growing it there would be a lot easier and maybe more profitable than trying to get into the American market. And, and remember, we don't even take the uh, entire quota of seals on an annual basis. We haven't for years. So let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Everett. You're on the air.
3: Good morning. Morning to you. I remember I was talking to you about maybe two or three weeks ago about our road in Wooddale.
1: Yes, and we went down the path of the fact that there's a provincial tree nursery there, but it's on the other side of the river.
3: Yeah, right. Right. Well, anyway, uh, last week they came in, and uh, I must give a bouquet to Bob operating the grader because he did an excellent job. But <laughs> there's always a but, isn't there? Uh, when he was doing it, of course, and it's uh, not his fault. It, you know, he started hooking into our basic blast rock foundation. So, uh, you know, he's bringing up uh, rocks and, and, of course, he graded most of them off into the ditch. But unfortunately, if they don't do something, you know, either build it up with the class A, ideally, of course, would be put pavement on it. But, uh, you know, but if they don't, I said, I like it to a person who builds a house. They, they build a good foundation basement, then they put their house on that. And if they should happen to run out of money and they don't put a good roof on it, eventually they're going to start losing their house and they will eventually lose, lose that foundation again. So that's what's going on here. We, we've got a good foundation to the road. And if they would put a good roof on it, pavement, they wouldn't have touched it probably for 50 years.
1: Yeah, I think the same can be said for every road. You know, we all talk about the ruts and the potholes and how just how quickly the roads start to lose their shape. And some of it starts absolutely with the bed and the bed preparation. So same thing for you guys,
3: 100%. Yeah, uh, the, you know, like I said, the, the foundation is there now. And uh, but each time they come in and grade it, now we're going to lose a bit of the foundation because they're going to still, you know, there's so, so little topping there now and when they grade it in order to get you know down deep enough to fill the potholes they're, they're going to be hooking into more of the of the, the base of the road so uh, eventually they'll have to start from scratch again right now if they you know if they would come and, and put a, a cap on it it would last the years so- and, and, and and like I said they, they, they would eliminate the the cost of, of grading. And and of course to keep the dust down, you know, they used to come in with calcium, and you know that's a cost, and, and so that would be eliminated with pavement.
1: Yeah, and I don't know what the future holds. But did you speak with anyone who came in and their thought process for not just that bit of grading work, but long term?
3: No, of course they they're just you know uh, workers for the government, so they they got no say over it anyway. But uh, but I um, mean, like I say, they 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 came in and did an excellent job, and I give a bouquet to the to the operator because he had very little little to work with, but he did a good job with, with what he had, right? So you know. But next time he comes back, ready, he's gonna hook in the more of the. The blast rock, and you know. when I go down on my my walk, I walk up and down a certain area, and any blast rock that's on the surface, I kick it off to the ditch, because you know it's going to pick up somebody's going to be walking, and probably one of those rocks you picked up by uh, a passing car could hit him in the head, or or go through a windshield or something like that. So
1: yeah all are regularly shaped pretty sharp shards that could be part of the blast rock composition so no doubt uh Everett, anything else you want to tell us this morning
3: no that's about it uh, i'm eventually going to get back to you on on, on farming uh, I, I was involved in two industries on the very low on the totem pole in, in both of them and farming is one and the music industry is another <laughs> and uh, from from that point of view I I see, you know, that the small guy always gets done in and and, and the only ones that really make any money. Are the guys on top?
1: Happy to talk about both. There's actually a very interesting story in the news today regarding farming and the need for more and more people to be brought into the industry. doesn't seem like people want to get involved, whether it be as a worker or as their own private business. So they're actually talking about the need for some 30,000 immigrants to work in the farming industry. I mean, you look in the United States, all the arguments and rackets about illegals and all the rest of it. Well, just wait and see what would happen if all of a sudden there was nobody working in those fields, whether it be in California or other. Otherwise, people will change their tune pretty quick. But anyway, that's yeah. a very interesting story about the need for immigrants and farming.
3: Yeah, yeah it was on the news earlier the other night that uh, in the next decade in Canada, there's going to be 40% of farmers retiring. And very few of them have, have anybody to take it over. So you know that you take 40% of the farmers out of the industry, you know, we have to eat. And and there's just nobody out there to... To produce
1: the food what is he you know well it's a problem today and it's only going to get worse and you know one of the comments in that news story was as opposed to simply giving them the tag of temporary foreign workers because the largest advancements now are being made in greenhouses which are year-round operations so we're not really following the trend in the agricultural industry as well so add that to the the heap of issues
3: yeah, well, even here in, in, in Wooddale, uh, uh, labour is, is hard to get. I mean, that's well, at one time when I first started out. I mean, uh, a month before the harvest, the fall, we can bring ringing off the, off the hook saying, when are you going to start your harvest? Now you, you're lucky if you get uh, half a dozen people. And, and uh, most of them are, are well up in age. Yep. You know, people that are probably retired from a, a job and, and they look for something to do for a, a week or so in the fall of the year, make a few extra dollars. But uh, and I know that one farmer here, he has to bring in people from uh, foreign countries. He has to, to actually build uh, places to, to house them and, and bring them in to help with the harvest. Because you say, young people just don't want to work hard anymore.
1: I suppose that's that's absolutely part of it. On the national stage, I'm going to dig into that story a little bit more, maybe talk about it in the morning when I have a better opportunity to wrap my head around it. Uh, good to have you on there. We appreciate the update.
3: Thank you. Take uh, and I, 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 I throw a bouquet to you folks because you you give a, 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 vo- a voice to the people who probably would never be heard. You know, and, and, and It's a good thing because they're it, it's, uh, it's getting harder and harder to get the message out and, and open lines is one good one good thing to, to have access to.
1: Well, we're happy to be here and appreciate your time this morning, Edward. Stay oh, in touch.
3: Thank you. Take All care.
1: Right. Bye-bye. All right, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line four. Colin, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you? This Not night? too bad, I suppose. How about you?
4: Doing good, thanks. I want to talk about the commissioning on Muskrat Falls. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I was listening to Ted uh, Sullivan there as your lead caller this morning. But I want to take a different tack or look at a different aspect of this now that it's going to be uh, commissioned uh, pretty soon, officially commissioned. Uh, I know I don't hear anybody, either in government or at NL Hydro or the federal government, provincial or federal, uh, talking about uh, the ability of uh, malevolent actors like the Russians or the Chinese or anybody else uh, from hacking into the computer systems that are going to run this thing, you know, and I don't mean now they're going to hold a news conference and give specific details on, you know, uh, security requirements and and protocols that they have in place. Obviously, they're not going to do that. That's all very sensitive um, information. But but I never hear anybody talking about that. It's never raised by the press. It's never raised in in any kind of uh, media releases by provincial government, federal government, or hydro, or anybody? I have.
1: I've talked about it. Uh, I've talked about it in three separate areas, and I think cybersecurity is something that does not get enough attention here, whether it be for individuals, private businesses, or public institutions. The three concerns that I've talked about was, we know full well there's been a hack of a pipeline in the United States and a ransom pay to regain control. We know there's massive uh, concerns with utilities, whether it be nuclear uh, power plants or others. There's also major concerns with hacking into uh, software that controls water and the potable water and the treatment of water, distribution of water, so those are three areas I've tried to talk about a few times. Never really gotten much in the way of traction, but I think they're big issues.
4: Yeah, I, I know you've raised it. I, I, you know, I, I don't mean just you, you know your talk show specifically, I mean the media in general.
1: Oh, no, I get it, I'm not taking yes. offense, I just wanted to say no, that you know no. those three yeah. areas I've tried to talk about.
4: Yeah, and, and now we're looking at 2041 to uh, uh, renegotiate or, ne- or negotiate a new deal with Quebec. Potentially uh, the Upper Churchill, and get that uh, matter straightened out with, with with Quebec, and and get power flowing across that border, and uh, obviously going into the Maritimes now with the Labrador Island link, and uh, and with the uh, the link across the uh, the, the uh, Cabot Strait to Nova Scotia. But uh, you know, and, and any uh, any future developments of Gall Island and anything else like that. So I, th- I think the provincial government needs to come out and uh, and, and say uh, that they've got a uh, comprehensive security policy for for the existing uh, infrastructure that's there and any potential uh, developments, you know, ten, fifteen, twenty, twenty-five years down the road that are going to be coming on stream will, uh, or or being contemplated being built. Uh, we, we need some reassurance, I think, from the provincial government and perhaps the federal government too, that uh, that there are robust uh, security measures in place to protect from uh, relevant actors uh, like the Russians and the Chinese from hacking into these systems. Because now we're with Muskrat uh, being commissioned, we're going to be integrated into the North American power grid. So whatever happens here with that project. Uh, It's going to affect the Maritimes and uh, Quebec, Ontario, the rest of Canada, potentially, and into the United States if if that power means... uh going to be it down into New England and that area, right?
1: Well, power systems have been hacked, and we know it to be true, and you know, for government reassurance, it's an interesting one because they can tell us they're on top of it until we find out that they're not. <laughs> you know, just look yeah. at the health system here. Now there's more yeah. and more, and one of the caveats with the most recent bilateral healthcare transfer dollar is things like more digitization. So, everything that we touch, well, you know, I've got some control inside my bank account because the CDIC will ensure my protection, but whether it be my own personal network, uh, or the, this company itself, or any public institution, it's becoming more and more difficult. I did ask this question of Jean Charest when he was on during the uh, run against Mr. Paul, he to be the leader. This was all about NATO and defense spending. I wonder whether or not the countries that are member nations should come to the conclusion that part of uh, defense spending should be cyber. Because it's not all trench warfare anymore, right? If we don't have that type of protection in place, because some of these things can be, I think, considered acts of war, hacking into a pipeline, hacking into the water treatment system, hacking into uh, muskrat or the power grid, these are all things that compromise our safety. So I think maybe we should reconsider what in, what, what's in the envelope of defense spending. Uh, last word to you, Colin, before I have to go.
4: Well, you're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, muskrat Falls now, like it or love it, it's uh, going to be connected to the national grid, And uh, it is uh, implicitly part of our national security considerations uh, for this country that Moskrat Falls uh, be uh, operating at uh, optimum capacity and and be protected from uh, malign actors. From hacking into that system, and you're you're quite right with uh, with the healthcare system. We didn't know there was a problem until it came out from the government release that there was a hack, and then we found out a lot of this information was being held on un- unencrypted, uh, unsecured servers. Right.
1: Yeah, and then the, information. Yeah, the numbers of people, employees and or patients, they continue to grow and grow and grow and the time frame in which the informa- information might have been compromised, continued to grow and grow and grow. And we still don't know much about it. We know some Hive network group did it. We don't know if, you know, how long they were in the system, how long the Trojan horse had infiltrated the Meditech system, whatever there might be in the form of ransom, even though I don't know what we do with that information, even if we have it. But I'm um, off to the news, Colin. Appreciate the time. Thanks, buddy. Take care. All right, bye bye. Uh, let's see here. The province is reporting a salmonella breakout. Not that news is not sitting well with everyone. Considering what we should be talking about is actual risk. Dennis Oliver from Turtle Rest and Retirement Villa is right after
5: the news. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your V O C M along with the best soundtrack for every night anywhere. The V O C M All Night Show, Midnight on your V O C M. Welcome back to the program. Well, on the 12th of April, the province co- uh, confirmed a second
1: incidence of salmonella here in the province, same as the genetic type that's been experienced across the country. So as a consequence, they've issued a, uh, a warning about handling of snakes and other reptiles and certain rodents. Join us online. number one is uh, Dennis Oliver. who's with the Turtle Rest and Retirement Villa to talk about the issue and the warning. Good morning, Dennis. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Excellent today. Thanks. How about you? Oh, you know, living the dream. Before we get into this particular warning, what goes on at the Turtle Rest and Retirement Villa?
6: We are Newfoundland's only turtle rescue organization that's uh, strictly dedicated to turtle care only.
1: And so, so, we paint a picture, like, what's going on inside the villa? How many turtles do you have, where do they come from, and what do you do?
6: Okay, we have a ten by ten pond in the basement, three and a half feet deep. We have a hundred and thirty five gallon aquarium in the living room, two other aquariums down in the basement with the pond uh We take uh turtles from folks who can no longer look after them for a variety of different reasons. It don't always come down to uh to to improperly looking uh improperly looking after them it comes down to uh maybe they are uh sick maybe they're moving they could be moving provinces certainly uh the elderly folks uh who have had a turtle for their child can no longer go up and down the basement stairs with large buckets of water to to fill the tanks and things like that so we take turtles from anyone uh we take a lot from the province uh humane services uh, wildlife newfoundland uh let me see st john's port authority is after bringing us to environment canada climate change so we're all about turtles
1: <laughs> i think it's awesome uh, this are freshwater turtles i assume Oh yes, yeah. Okay, so like snapping turtles or what type of turtles? No, no,
6: no. These are all the uh, pet store variety turtles. So you're talking about the red ear slider, yellow belly slider. Okay. Uh, We have a few exotic species here. We have a couple of uh, map turtles. We have one East African serrated side neck mud turtle. Uh, These turtles that are not red ear sliders are supposed to have a permit to possess for the province of Newfoundland and Labrador, and that's not that's not widely known, unfortunately
1: very interesting okay so let 's get down to your concerns with the province's warning regarding handling reptiles, whether it be snakes or turtles or rodents what 's your takeaway
6: well, uh, my takeaway is it comes down to owner education and proper handling of the pest, and that certainly that certainly includes their food that certainly includes their waste their Clean out their filter systems in our case or when you're taking uh droppings from the bottom of an enclosure for something like a bearded dragon or a gecko which are quite common here in the province it really comes down to owner education and we beat on that drum a lot especially where turtles are concerned that's why we have 63 here a fair portion of those folks don't know how to care for them properly and it gets to a point where maintenance becomes a horror show when that happens, especially for a turtle owner, uh, that increases the risk of salmonella. Simple as that. So, again, it comes back to proper education about the pest. And I found the, uh, I found the article to be a little, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, uh, Fear-inducing of having a pet reptile. It's not the reptiles it's down to the owner's fault. And if somebody got sick from salmonella, again, comes back to education about the pet. Dennis?
5: Are you, yeah. Oh, are you sorry you, with
1: me? you cut out there for a second. So I read the article. It's not for me to say how anyone should uh, interpret an article. But the basics simply said, you know, officials remind individuals too. So is that kind of going down the path you are with education about how to properly and appropriately handle, whether it be droppings or the skin shed from a snake or what have you?
6: absolutely absolutely uh we fully agree with the uh recommendations laid out especially by the vet that spoke uh earlier in a news broadcast on k-rock um they said it's all about proper handling proper sanitization and it's all about proper education if you're unsure ask somebody
1: Fair enough. Uh, So that's for the owners or the handlers. What about the reference that I think I read in that news story that said that stress for a reptile can increase the possibility of shedding uh, of salmonella? What does that really mean? What kind of stressful situations would we be talking about?
6: uh okay uh let's talk about handling okay. okay so a common uh reptile uh you can say turtle gecko uh bearded dragon uh they are cold-blooded folks they don't like to be handled a whole lot they're a little nervous about humans uh they see us as a large predator so uh that can cause them to produce more salmonella and if you're handling them and you're not following the proper guidelines for sanitization afterwards well that's how that that's how that makes folks sick you know
1: yeah, it makes sense and there's you know there's got to be not only for the mom or dad who bought the turtle for their child as you mentioned earlier or how you rescued some of these uh these turtles in particular but what should we be passing along to say for instance our children because the first thing that many kids would like to do is give a little smooch
6: whether it be oh my goodness right <laughs> definitely not not recommended for a turtle uh, and certainly not for any other kind of a uh, reptile, uh, such as the bearded dragon, leopard gecko, things like that. First of all, they can bite, especially if they think you're a threat. So they see this big pair of lips coming at them. Well, that's a, that's a large predator wanting to eat them as far as they are concerned. So you stand a very, very large chance of losing a piece of your lip. Uh, then you get into the salmonella risk. And for turtles especially uh, these guys live in water they shed lots of skin which decays in the water that increases salmonella risk don't be kissing your turtle and your reptiles <laughs> it's hardly not recommended
1: and then if you, whatever you use to bathe or to wash or whatever your pet your reptile don't use that for any other purpose uh, no. Same thing when it comes to some containers you might use for food or what have you don't use that for any other purpose beyond that
6: Absolutely not. And I would like to uh, send a message to all the turtle care people out there. Get yourself a UVC clarifier. It works in conjunction in conjunction with your filter system. Uh, it's a UVC light, and it kills everything. Sounds about right.
1: Uh, right. Dennis, I'm glad you made uh, time for the program this morning. Anything else you'd like to say?
6: Uh, no, uh, I think that's about it, Patty. Happy, happy reptile keeping, folks. Uh, As always, safety first, keep yourself clean, wash your hands, get yourself a good sanitizer for your countertops if you happen to wash your turtle in your sink, uh, which is not recommended, but we have so many sinks in a house, you know, uh, sometimes you have to use them. It all comes down to get yourself educated, keep your areas clean and disinfected, and you shouldn't have an issue with salmonella and reptiles.
1: Good to have you on the show, Dennis. Keep up the good work at the Turtle Rest and Retirement Villa.
6: Cheers, Paddy. Thanks a lot. All the best.
1: Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, there you go. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, Josh is there to talk about an issue with a neighbor. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go. Line number two. Josh, you're on the
7: air. Hey, Patty. Patty, how are you? Okay, this
1: morning. How are you doing?
7: I'm pretty good. Um, if my name rings a bell, um, I was a PC candidate there for uh, when I ran into provincial election there a few years ago. Okay. I stepped down because of... Um, some kind of, uh, you know, a little bit of bullying that was going on and I realized uh, how dirty politics was, so I just stepped down. So, if you're wondering why Josh Nolan rings the bell, that's why. Fair enough. That's not why I'm calling here this morning. right. Um, I purchased a investment property. Um, I left the city and moved out to beautiful Harbour Grace. And uh, since I moved in this house, I'm not going to, uh, of course, name any of these people or neighbors, but let's just call them Larry Curly Moe. I purchased this investment property and since I purchased this home, it's been nothing but a nightmare dealing with um, close neighbors. and um, they've been a complete nuisance uh, to me and my partner disrespecting my property. As far as um, it came to a bit of a, an extreme this morning when I woke up and all of my trees on my property were removed and th- thrown down over an embankment. What? I have contacted the police. Um, they do have a file. They had a previous file on this person as well. Um, I contacted the town. The town is kind of like sick of dealing with these people. The police has been down to my house and... Um, just kind of at a standstill of what else to do.
1: So how did the relationship with your new neighbours get off? You know, obviously on the wrong foot, but what happened for this to be as acrimonious as it sounds?
7: We were actually really fine at first. Um, We became, I guess, I wouldn't say good friends, but we became neighbourly. Of course, I guess the the property uh, could have been purchased by other people, but I came along and purchased it. And, um, I guess there's a little bit of jealousy. Uh, I, I, you know, I renovated the house. The house looks beautiful. Um, we put in so much money and so much time into this house and these people, I mean, they, they got a mentality of a 14 year old and they act out and, um, you know, it's just, uh, we're not, we're not moving. I don't know if that's their idea of us, like, you know, surrendering, surrendering and like putting our hands up and telling the house we're not going to move. But, um, yes, I think it's because, you know, they never got the house we did. And, um, it's just—it's kind of getting out of hand now, and it's just kind of ridiculous of the behavior that they're getting on with.
1: So, I mean, obviously, destruction of private property should be investigated by the uh, police. You know, so they—they t-
7: they chopped down the trees on your property. They did. Uh, they were newly planted trees. Okay. Uh, they, but they were uh, tied down with straps, of course, because uh, of the wind until they uh, get secure. And I'm a landscaper, so you know, it's really important all my work goes into the property and just to see it disrespected like that it's you know it uh, kind of shows me of what their char- character is like um, you know which is just absolute childish and you know like I said the mentality of a 14 year old and I think it's just time to uh, you know like back off and get a life <laughs> yeah
1: I mean it sounds kind of ridiculous and other than the tree issue which is all bad enough what else is going on
7: uh, we had problems with like the, uh, with people, uh, Larry Curly and Bo. I call them. Uh, you know, blocking um, entrance to my house and like the fire lane. Um, the fire lane was a big issue with the town because of course if an emergency uh, had to happen and those people couldn't get to me in time. This fire lane is the only access to my house. And, of course, those vehicles could not get off this lane. And, of course, the town has dealt with these people before, but they're just kind of relentless about it. And uh, I don't know. If they're listening, it's just time to grow up.
1: so bizarre. Where is this, Josh?
7: Harbor Grace. Harbor Grace. you know I-, I just want to say that the town has been actually wonderful to deal with. The police has been wonderful to deal with. But these people are just you know they're um they're lousy
1: well they sound it and you know as the old adage goes sometimes the best neighbor is a tall fence
7: that's right yeah and you know these people have said to me when i purchased a house to um people in small towns don't like seeing other people getting ahead and it turns out that these are, these are the people <laughs> that are giving me advice you know
1: yeah. Well, I'm sorry to hear that it's happening to you because that's just simply uh, ridiculous for neighbors to think that it's any way uh, acceptable to haul up the newly planted trees and flick them down over the bank. It's just so juvenile. It's kind of a head-scratcher.
7: Yeah, it's, it's disgusting, you know.
1: <laughs> I appreciate the time, Srinivas. Really, Josh, hopefully they uh, come to their senses.
7: Let's hope so. Thank you, Patty.
1: You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, you can only hope to live in a neighborhood where the neighbors are neighborly, because there's a big upside, and that being the feature of the neighborhood for livability and everything else under the sun and looking out for each other's property when you might be away and all the rest of it. But again, it's unfortunate when sometimes the very best neighbor will will indeed be a, a tall fence. And then you get into it, and I see this, this is a racket, a, a friend of mine in his neighborhood, is that, you know, people try to do their best to keep their property up to snuff. Keep it clean, keep the lawn mowed, you know, take care of the property for whether it be curb appeal or otherwise, or just pride in the biggest investment most of us will ever make in our lifetime. But then you'll always have the possibility for one or two or a number of neighbors who don't have the same sense of pride and consequently they have a very run-down piece of property which does impact a variety of things including your own the value of your own home so far too often these properties are rental properties and so for the renters it's kind of hard to blame them for these types of things because why would they want to take on the task of a fresh coat of paint or to deal with the lawn necessarily, even though as a renter I'd probably mow the lawn, but that's maybe sometimes what happens there. And it's really hard to know where to turn because if it's affecting your property value or simply just the appeal of your neighborhood, then what do you do? And in this case here, when you have the willful destruction of uh, private property by whatever the motivation is for these, these particular neighbors to do such a thing is, I don't know, but maybe, just maybe, this is a law enforcement issue as much as it's trying to uh, make a batch of chocolate chip cookies and deliver them and try to offer that olive branch so that things can get back to a bit more normal behavior, adult behavior, mature behavior so that was really quite bizarre we are just waiting it's only going to be minutes away before chris aylward who's the president of the psac the public service alliance of canada to give us an update as to where they stand uh with the potential to go on strike and they do not owe anybody 72 hours notice that 124,000 members of that particular organized labor organization they can go at the drop of a hat so I knew I was going to get these types of emails when I dare to say this off the top of the show. But I wonder where the level, what the level of public support is for potential job action. If they can negotiate a contract that's better for them and their members, of course, that's Mr. Aylward's job. That's what he's there to do. The members certainly would want to get whatever they can in the form of rate of pay, remuneration, or benefits packages. But you know, some of the success for one side or the other here, is where the public support lies. So if the country is not really in the mood to see more and more money spent in the operations of government, more and more money spent on individuals, not to say that I begrudge anyone a certain rate of pay, but if the government doesn't see that there's a big wave of public support behind PSAC, that will probably have some influence on how this works out for them, because that's long been one of the things that, and the favorite uh, favor, of favor, me, that unions try to curry is that when the public's behind them, then that gives them an additional la- lever that they can pull on, and additional support means maybe politicians, in this case, would back down, or government officials, in this case, would maybe appease their demands versus the standoff that we've obviously found ourselves at. The members of that particular union have not had a contract in well over a year, so you know full well that this is going to very, very likely require some sort of work stoppage here. And you know, someone asked the question, what's the price tag on that? And uh, the savings for government? Well, I suppose we really don't know the answer to that question given the moving targets that are part of this. So if it's what they say might be work to rule protests in certain parts of the country, whether it be rolling strikes from different uh, departments in different provinces throughout the entirety of however long this may last, or whether or not it's a full on walkout. So we don't really know what that the answer to that question would be because we're not really sure the feature or the flavor of the potential for this work is the largest in the country over the last three decades. All right, let's check in on the Twitter box. We're VOCM Open Line, You know what to do. Follow us there. Our email address is at VOCM.com. When we come back, the topic next in the queue,
5: entirely up to you. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the program. Well, from April 16th to
1: the 22nd, it's National Volunteer Week here in this province. The theme is Volunteering Weaves Us Together, and no truer words were ever spoken, but it's not all rosy picture when we talk about volunteerism across the country. Join us online, number one, is Colin Corcoran. He's the CEO of the Community Sector Council of Newfoundland and Labrador. Good morning, Colin. You're on the air.
8: Hi, Petty. Good morning. Good morning to you. Happy Volunteer Week. Happy Volunteer Week to you, my friend. Been pleased to
1: be involved in Volunteer Week in a couple of different capacities over the years. Uh, Before we get into some of the things that we're seeing on the ground in this province across the country, uh, offer some thoughts on Penelope Rowe.
8: Uh, Yes, so uh, Penny was the CEO of the Community Sector Council, a trailblazer uh, for the community sector here in Newfoundland and Labrador, and uh, has uh, finished up her tenure uh, this year.
1: Enormous contributions, and you know, they say if you want to get something done, give it to a busy person, and Penelope (laughs) was the epitome of that.
8: That's absolutely. I've never met somebody with the energy and who can run circles around me uh, on a daily basis.
1: Yeah, she was real powerhouse, no doubt about it. And I hope I hope she finds a way to slow down in her retirement because it was a million miles an hour every day, all day. So good for her. I'm really a big fan of Penelope Rowe. Okay, so what are we seeing in this province? Because there's been. Uh, Uh, stories circulating across the country coming from Volunteer Canada that somewhere in the neighborhood of 65% of organizations have identified a shortage inside their ranks. Do we have any idea what's led to all of these shortcomings or gaps in the volunteerism uh, sector?
8: Absolutely, there's a few things happening uh, in our sector, particularly when it comes to uh, the retention and traction of volunteers. So the first, uh, first being uh, changing demographics, and so what we see is volunteers and traditional volunteering. Uh, a number of the uh, a number of our seniors who have volunteered in uh, long-term engagements are now at the retirement age or retiring, or they're or they're passing on, and of course uh, the pandemic really was a shift in the way that people engage with each other. And so during the pandemic, we did see a noticeable drop in, uh, in volunteerism around uh, with uh, seniors. So that's, uh, that's one challenge that uh, we're seeing with volunteerism. The other part is uh, the nature of volunteerism itself is changing, especially with a, a new generation coming on scene. And we know that from uh, similar reports that the highest percentage or prevalence of volunteerism is actually in the 15 to 24-year-old age demographic. And yet uh, volunteerism looks a little bit different uh, for a uh, younger generation. So from a generational perspective and the impacts from the pandemic, uh, that's leading to uh, some of the struggles in, um, in uh, keeping our volunteer numbers up.
1: Yeah. And, you know, the sad news here is inside of that 65% of organizations without enough volunteers of them had to cut some of their services. So this has a wide-reaching impact. And with the changing face of volunteerism, you know, other adages that I've used many this morning is, if you get them young, you can probably keep them in the fold. So with, say, for instance, high school credits associated with students doing some volunteerism, I would have thought that would have lifelong impact. But I guess many are just, once they satisfy their need for credits at school, then it kind of goes by the wayside. And I'm a little surprised with that because there is a lot of self-gratification coming from volunteering as well.
8: There is, and... speak to volunteerism itself you know through volunteerism we really do experience the interconnectedness you find friendship you develop trust linkages it really truly enriches uh, people's lives and uh, yes we've had some conversations on the high school uh, volunteer um, section and requirements uh, for the um, for the system here in the province at our recent uh, volunteer connections conference on Friday I've had some uh, some parents actually reach out uh, about this as well so so it's one area that we will be exploring over the next uh, over the next uh, couple months on uh, how to make more meaningful engagements, not just for uh, high school students, but for all volunteers.
1: Some people might not see a link here, but even just cost of living issues, whether it be the price of gas and getting childcare if that's required for you to conduct your volunteering, all of these things, you know, we're adding the demographic issue, there's a variety of factors at play that really see this to be a problem that seems to be growing, certainly not being settled or solved.
8: You know you're absolutely right, and it's a connection that most people don't make. But um, to be able to volunteer requires additional time, additional resources, and additional will uh, to be able to go out and spend um, spend more time with community groups or with uh, with populations, uh, or to lend uh, lend one's uh, afternoon, evenings, or time. So there is sometimes a barrier uh, to entry for volunteerism.
1: Another one might be with a criminal background check. Now you absolutely need to know who's coming in the door to help as a volunteer because oftentimes they'll be working with people who are in precarious positions or maybe quite vulnerable what can we do to overcome it because if that keeps 10% of people would be willing to volunteer out of the system maybe like a government-funded background check a cost coverage versus them needing to step up put their cash on the barrel head. what do you think?
8: I think we need to put all solutions on the table and have a really conservative conversation around what volunteerism looks like in our province and how do we reduce all the barriers to entry. Uh, Testing and piloting uh, different initiatives is something that we are focused on and looking at uh, over the next uh, 12 months in particular as we continue to uh, study what the unpaid labor force in our sector uh, looks like, particularly how we attract, how we retain, and how we celebrate volunteers.
1: And, you know, someone will say, God, Patty, you can't get government to cover everything. If we backed out not-for-profits, charities, individual volunteers from the economy, we would be doomed. There's no way government could pick up that slack if it all went by the wayside. So when I say, you know, if they spent a few thousand dollars on criminal background checks, that's absolutely in their best interest because with the work that your group does and other charities do, if government had to all of a sudden be the backfill for that, we would be in a really sorry state of affairs.
8: We would definitely be in a tight spot. Uh, when you really look at it and look at the rate of volunteers, and particularly in our province, I think at one point, and these studies need to be refreshed, but it listed potentially you know hundreds of thousands of people in our province uh, are volunteers or identify volunteers, or are volunteers, and they just don't identify themselves as volunteers. They provide uh, services such as running food banks, uh, shoveling out seniors during, during snowstorms, uh, and uh, including... Uh, running recreation programs, there is a lot that volunteers in our province do uh, for uh, for society, the economy, uh, and for uh, for each other's neighbors. And so, if that were to end tomorrow, we would be in a, in a very difficult position.
1: And, you know, it's not all always just dealing with people who are quite vulnerable. You could be a, a Cub Scout leader, or in the guiding world, or in minor sports, or other extracurriculars where a lot of the people who do a lot of the work are volunteering their time. So, it's not just work for meals on wheels or at a senior's home or what have you because there's you know just about everywhere you look there's a volunteer component. Are there any specific areas or specific organizations that are seeing significant shortage of volunteers in this province?
8: I, I hear I hear from many organizations that uh, they're struggling with uh, retaining and attracting uh, volunteers um, and, and it's it's not one subsector or one organization in particular some do a really good job of it um, they've engaged uh, volunteer coordinators and professionalized their volunteer programs and some don't have the capacity to do that uh, so it is it is universal across many of the organizations that we have in our community sector
1: what do you have up your sleeve for volunteer week
8: Oh volunteer Week. Uh, So as as you mentioned in the preamble there, uh, so Volunteer Week, uh, we're celebrating this week. We started with the uh, the launch of a Volunteers uh, Connections Conference uh, on Friday where we had 120 uh, participants from across the province. Uh, We've uh, partnered with Volunteer Canada to uh, to partner with them on the launch of their uh, national volunteer strategy as well. And so during this week, uh, there's a series of events happening um, and in partnership with VOCM Cares Foundation uh, we have uh, volunteer uh, celebrations happening across the province. Uh, at least, uh, at least 70 uh, from different communities, and when you. When you plug in the uh, municipal proclamations, individual volunteer events, there's uh, well over 100 uh, activities happening across our province. Uh, For us this week, it's about celebration. It's about celebrating the volunteers in our communities. It's about celebrating the the volunteers who really, truly weave everything together for us and keep us together and connected. And this will lead then into uh, next week. Uh, So if anybody is listening and they're interested, uh, we're taking uh, nominations for volunteers uh that are near and dear to you uh to help celebrate at an event at uh, government house uh as well next week and so if is interested they can go to our website uh, communitysector.nl.ca for the nomination form and for the other things that are happening this week
1: do you still have when i was the honorary chair you know there was a big event out of port union another one out in gander and of course the government house Are those still on the calendar
8: Yes, the Government House one is still on the calendar, and uh, multiple communities across the province are hosting their own uh, volunteer week. So uh, my recommendation is to for people to engage with their municipalities, with their councils, uh, and even individually, just celebrate volunteers, even if it's a matter of sending a note, uh, writing a kind, uh, a kind letter, uh, a handshake, a high-five, or just a simple acknowledgement over social media.
1: Appreciate the time this morning, Colin. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. Take care. You too. Bye bye. It's Colin Corcoran. He's the CEO at the Community Sector Council, which is an all encompassing volunteer group. Offers a lot of guidance for uh, really professionalizing your organization and what have you. Lots of supports come from them. Well, what do you want me to do here, David? Will I take Earl, come back for theater? Okay, let's go to line number three. Earl, you're on the air.
9: Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Uh, yes, I was just listening to you call there with volunteerism and getting volunteers here and around the province, how difficult it is, and especially since, you know, before the last, a lot through the pandemic and whatever. But I've been volunteering for about 30 years, I would imagine. Most of my volunteer time goes into senior zones. So I, I entertain there. And I'm getting back into it now. I mean, it was cut down Again, while the pandemic goes on, but as the way they go about uh, achieving their volunteers, I don't drive. I don't have a vehicle, uh, but I still I'm still pretty active in a lot of a lot of the areas. But I live about 25 minutes walk from the nearest bus stop because I live outside the city. And some of the homes where I play to, it. you can go in and hook up. All you need is a cord for your guitar. And you got the mics, you got the amplifiers there, but some places don't. So, someone came to me a while back, and they said they were visiting their, their mother at a home, and they were looking for volunteers, and wondered would I be willing to go up and play for a couple hours, or an hour or whatever. I said, yeah, sure, it's not a problem. So they gave me the name of the person I was to contact. I contacted that person. Now, I have a small amplifier, I have my guitar case with uh, with my musical instruments into it and I have my uh, another case that I carry with my microphone and cords that I need you know so I, I can't carry it 25 minutes to the bus stop that's uh, quite as cold so I phoned this place up and asked him what be looking yeah we, we need we need them you know we're not getting enough to come in there and we're with them and the seniors like them so I said I'm willing to play for you I said I got one little problem. They said, what's that? I said, can you get me transportation up and back? And without drawing a breath, Patty, without anything at all, she said, nope. And that was it. I said, well, you know, so I'm willing to come in and give you my time. And I don't have, well, we, we don't do that. So there's nothing I can do for you. And Patty, I know darn well. The, those uh, places with recreation they have money for recreation, because I've been at this racket a long time. I'm not looking to be paid, Patty. I don't want to be paid. I'm volunteering. But a ride up. Now, there's another home that does give me transportation back and forth every time I play. And there was one beside that I haven't played in for a while. I just want to be coming back. I will get transferred. But this one in particular, they're looking to for volunteers, but they want not extend that little bit of help to get their volunteer uh up and back, and that i don 't understand, and I know how important volunteers are because when you go into those homes, I, I see the faces of those people when I talk to them and, uh, and, and play for them there you know they 're very appreciative of what you 're doing for them, and why they won 't transport there is beyond me. I, you know I'm not, but you would think of that, but it 's a problem it 's a problem to me.
1: Fair enough. I mean, I've worked with organizations that would offer that type of assistance to get someone's bit of talent or free time uh, volunteered. So I'm not sure what to say about this particular group as to why they were unwilling to do anything for you to get you there to play a few tunes for the residents. Uh, appreciate the time, Earl. Anything else you want to say before I take a break?
9: No, I, I I think this is summing up, Paddy. So, and, and I know because, I mean, i play quite a bit again. Like I say, it's starting to build up, pick up for me again right now. Well, where was, uh was off for a while due to the pandemic where they wasn't bringing anybody in. Yeah. But right now that it's back in the stream again, you'd think if, if they're short of volunteers, they would sort of go the extra mile to get someone there. I mean, it's not going to cost them a, a share in the home or anything. You know I mean? It's just going to be probably maybe even a taxi, lift, a taxi ride up, a taxi ride back would be great. Or they, they got their own vans, they got their own vehicles there. I know they do, but I've been in this a long time. And they could send some loot to pick you up and bring you back. But apparently they need them, but not bad enough to transport them. Appreciate the time, Earl. And thanks I, for the call. I, and, I, and I'm willing to do this. Okay, thanks for listening. All the best.
1: Bye bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, the Director of Advocacy and Communications at Municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador is Deatra Walsh. She's next. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the Director of Advoc- Advocacy. I struggle with that word. And Communications at MNL. That's Deatra Walsh. Good morning, Deatra. You're on the air.
10: Oh, good morning, Patty. Thanks for having me on this morning.
1: Happy to do it. So I read a new story that includes you and Tony Fang, who's a professor at Memorial University. He's talking about skills mismatch when we talk about immigration, pointing to the specifics of the 13 Filipinos here that are going to be working in a fish plant. One's a nurse, one's an early childhood educator, but they're going to be working in a fish plant. So that's one thing. You're talking about creating a welcoming atmosphere, in especially rural parts of the province, because immigration, by and large, we think with them settling in the larger centers, right here in the metro region, for instance. So what are you talking about when creating a more welcoming atmosphere?
10: Yeah, and I think just to start off, a good point there is on labor shortages, right? So we're seeing labor shortages across the board here, and of course, part of um, addressing those labor shortages is attracting and retaining um, people to our communities, and in particular, newcomers. So when you have that environment, and especially in rural areas, and and just to note, you know, Newfoundland Labrador is no exception to this. It's the same across the country. Um, but when you're managing that, and you want to welcome people in, and you have industry that is in need of labor. Um, um, you know, Part of that process is understanding um, who the, the folks that are coming there and what their needs may be. And so we've done a lot of work at Municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador around creating welcoming communities because we do see a role um, that municipalities can play and lead in that process. Because, again, we want people to come to our communities. We want people to come to rural areas and see what they have to offer. But we have to make sure things are in place. So, yes, part of that is... Is what does welcoming mean, and what can that look like? Um, so, so I mean, a couple of things around that is. Um, we had the Welcome and L project, which focused on creating capacity for welcoming. But even more recently, we've been doing a lot of work on uh, physician recruitment and retention, which is not not dissimilar from this conversation. So how do you, you know, do you know what your local business community is? Do you know what your local housing stock is? What is the availability of child care? Um, what about transit? You know, all of these, these kind of key elements um, that municipalities can offer uh, to newcomers in addition to creating, community events and that sort of thing. Yeah,
1: and we're talking about uh, newcomers who are coming for a job, for instance, if you refer to the Filipinos. So, you know, people do indeed have a hard time with the immigration conversation sometimes, but we're talking about uh, expanding the population of your area. We're talking about people bringing more and more money to the province, because if you're working, you're going to spend it to the local shops or what have you. So there's a widespread uptick to this. The real tricky uh, thing, not only uh, in rural parts of the province, but it's also been part of the issue here in St. John's, for instance, is... You know, the concept, if you build it, they will come. You're much more likely to stay as a newcomer if there are people like you, that look like you, that have traditions and countries of origin similar to yours, faith similar to yours. So, you know, it sounds quite obvious say, to start at the beginning, but those first steps, right? Until you create that welcoming base, not just for access to amenities, but for people who are similar to them with all the backgrounds and traditions that I just mentioned, that's where it becomes a little bit more tricky.
10: Well, and I think, you know, I think we have to recognize that our province is already quite diverse and in rural areas as well, Um, you know, and I, you know, there are communities out there. And I think, again, our leaders, you know, if you look to any particular community that is attracting and retaining uh, newcomers, they are doing work with those communities and with partners like the ANC uh, to ensure that things are in place, that um, the members of those particular communities are supported. And again, you know, back to the welcoming piece, you know, that's also about creating, you know, some of things I've already talked about, anti-racist spaces, to ensuring that there's, you know, cultural sensitivity, that the kind of training and, and elements of that are also in place so that when we talk about what welcoming really is, we get to the heart of it. It is truly um, not causing harm, ensuring communities are safe spaces for new people. And again, they can thrive with other members of their communities, whatever they may look like, and also within that space collectively, Right.
1: Uh, no question uh, maybe I was very clumsy in the point I was trying to make and that's quite likely uh, but do you want to re- make reference to some of the things that uh, Tony Fang is talking about too because I think this is a big question across the country how many times have you been in a big city somewhere else in the country get in an uber and strike up a conversation with the driver who happens to be a well-trained medical professional but doesn't do that in Canada because we haven't seen the credentials be transferred so they can do mm-hmm. what they did in their own home country so the skills mismatch is a real big item that I don't think anyone's firmly wrapped their mind around how to alleviate some of that because if you're an engineer in Syria, you should be very easily, you know, be up to Canadian standards and testing to be an engineer here as opposed to working in the plant or driving an Uber or whatever the case may be
10: yeah and i mean tony is a as a is a great expert on that, and there's certainly a lot of other um folks working in that labor area i mean as a as a sociologist and a and a labor researcher, I can comment a little bit on that um but yeah i mean we see a skills mismatch um for sure and of course you know um uh, you know, people will people often take opportunities to to get a start in in a various industry that may not be geared toward what their skills are. Um, again, you know that is problematic in many ways. Of course, there are labor shortages. So, I mean, part of the work here, and again, I'm, I'm I'm speaking again as a researcher in this case, but I mean, part of the work here is understanding how we can get people credentialed up so that they can also fill in those other areas um, where skills are needed. But that's still going to leave labor shortages in, for example. Fish plants or whatever the case may be so you know we've got to get people in we've got to have fair wages um, we've got to get people working where their skills are but we still need you know people to do this other work that needs to happen as well so yeah it's a complicated and complex uh Uh, mesh if you will but uh, but you know we've got to get the policies in place to make that happen and again you know getting back to healthcare professionals you know we need nurses we need doctors we need engineers so if folks are coming into work in various spaces where there is a mismatch we do have to figure out a way to get them into these other uh, industries that are in dire need of of that skill set for sure
11: yeah
1: and I mean one such area regarding a story and I'm just going to put, put add this to the conversation there was the issue regarding agriculture and the shortages therein and it's harder and harder to get people to work in that industry and so you know we bring in uh, immigrants to work in the agricultural sector as temporary foreign workers when the real trend inside of producing food is in the greenhouse which is a year-round operation so we've got to connect the reality and the trends with the legislation and the transference of credentials and what-have-you because one doesn't work properly without the other Uh, final thoughts go to you Diatra before we say goodbye for the news.
10: No, I just—I I mean, I just want to give a shout out to the to the great team here at municipalities, Newfoundland, Labrador, doing a lot of great work in this area to support our members. Um, the physician recruitment and retention toolkit is going to be coming out in a couple of weeks, where we talk about some of these very key items. What can we do um, around this? And and that's an acetate for for all the other conversations. Um, so that's pretty exciting, and uh, and we'll continue to support our members. And also, just to you know, there's a lot of municipal leaders out there in our communities who are already doing really fabulous work in this area to ensure people feel welcome in their communities and to bring them into those communities and celebrate what's happening there. So thanks so much.
1: I appreciate your time this morning, Datcher. Thank you very much. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye Bye now. De'Atra Walsh is the Director of Advocacy and Communications at MNL. Well, the protesters have uh, gathered at Confederation Building. That's, of course, talking about snow crab. Maybe we'll get an update from someone who's at the protest site. And I think we've got an update. I'm trying to get the details and clarify some information about the position that the PSAC has taken today with the potential for work stoppage. It looks like that may indeed start this week on Wednesday. We'll get all the details confirmed during the news. And when we come back... Lots of time to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away.
5: Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the program. Let's start this hour on line number one. Say so good morning to VOCM
1: News, Richard Duggan. Good morning, Richard. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. So we know you're on site at the Confederation Building where the snow crab harvesters have gathered to do what? Well, First off, paint us a picture. What are you seeing?
5: Yes, well, Patty, I've covered many protests here at Confederation Building, and I I don't remember seeing such a crowd here in a very long time. So when we came up, um, I had to go park in the overflow parking lot, and – it is completely chock full. People parking up on the grass. I've never seen that many people park there before. Uh, right now, there's a crowd gathered in front of the steps of Confederation Building, but there's still more to come. We just had, just as I was waiting to come on with you, uh, three big DRL buses, uh, presumably full of harvesters who have been bussed in from across the province for this protest. Um, there's lots of signs uh, I'm sure you can probably hear the music here is loud they're looking to get people fired up um, I, it's going to be an interesting sight to behold especially once all of these uh, other harvesters now that get off the buses and we really get a good picture of just how big this crowd is going to be because uh, the news release from the FAW uh, that was sent out over the weekend I believe uh, said that they're, they're expecting hundreds of harvesters today so uh, it's going to be a big crowd I think.
1: Yeah and you're probably some family members of harvesters maybe some plant workers who work in the crab processing plant as well because their livelihood and their weeks of work also depend on this fishery getting up and running for me i'm not entirely sure what they're asking the province to do what are they telling you they're they're protesting i know it's about the price and the flawed system that is the price setting panel but what are they looking for the government to do on this front
5: well, yeah. So that's one of the things, Patty. So when we got the initial notification about this protest, I believe it was on Friday. Um, initially, the, the focus seemed to be on the price again, the two twenty versus the three. I can't remember now, three fifteen or, or what the FFAW had put in. Um, but then we got another release yesterday, and the focus seems to have focused now to fairness in the fishery. Now, what exactly fairness? in the fishery means in the context of this. I guess we're going to have to wait and find out uh, for when the protest starts and everyone starts speaking. Um, But, you know, we've heard the concerns. There's, you know, it's been going on for months and months now um, in terms of what they will want. And I guess we're soon going to find out because it looks as though the speeches are about to start.
1: We'll follow along on your Twitter feed to get some more information. Thanks for making time for the show, Richard. Thank you very much, Fatty. Take care. Bye bye. No surprise. The emotions are very, very real and always will be inside the fishery until we find some solutions to these annual issues, whether it be about the, the price per pound of whatever species and uh, the variety of other issues which don't seem to be changing. We've seen some incremental change, you know, doing away with the LIFO policy, right? Last in, first out. Those types of things that have seen some positive adjustments made and some positive amendments to the Fisheries Act, but the same issues year over year over year. And and this one on the snow crab landed value last year somewhere in excess of 750 million dollars not all of it got sold which i think is another complicating factor regarding the market and access to uh let's go to line number two good morning Saul. you're on the air
12: yes hello hello hi thank you for taking my phone call i just want to say i'm an immigrant from new york city originally and uh my mother lives here she was originally from ottawa um and I just wanna say how, you know, it's very welcoming in some parts, but as an immigrant there's a lot of things that could be very difficult when you when you're living here. Such as such as well, I mean, one thing is just nature. I mean, like I said, I'm from the city and you know, just like things like the seals, you know, they're always just like, you know, there and nipping and whatnot and it's just crazy. But, you know, as also because I'm Jewish, it makes it very difficult like during Passover, um, you know, my mother, she's in a walker, and uh, she was trying to get out, and she had a terrible accident. And, you know, it was very difficult to get her seen because, you know, she, you know, the seals were going crazy.
1: What part of the province did you immigrate to, Saul?
12: Me? I'm up in St. John's currently.
1: Okay. What...
12: And I just—go ahead, sorry.
1: No, that's okay. What brought you here?
12: What, my mother, my mother is uh, my mother married my father. My father worked down in in Brooklyn, and she was originally from Canada. And then uh, my father passed away several years ago, and my mother moved back up to Canada. And uh, she's kind of moved around, and she's become very, very you know, uh, uh, terribly. Her legs are all swollen. Um, it, So she needed some help. So I, you know, I come in um, every now and then, but because of her condition, I'd like to get her back to New York. But my God, uh, you know, with the health care and everything else, it's just so crazy.
1: So th- the difference in healthcare between the United States and Canada is obviously very, very real. Uh, we call it universal healthcare here, even though there nothing is free. We pay for the healthcare system through our tax dollars. So what would be the difference, whether it be access or money out of pocket, if you were back in New York City trying to get help for your mother?
12: Well, I would say it's it's just it's oh my God, with her like she also has diabetes. Um, so I guess there the insulin's free, but she can't get. She has to pay for her, her, her needles, which is just, to me, crazy. So when she comes back, I try to bring her back to New York, or I have a friend who works in the medical field, and I try to bring her things. But when I'm coming over in my car, you know, and I'm bringing any type of metal equipment, they treat me like a, a, a criminal.
1: At the border? or at yeah, the airport both ways. Okay.
12: You know, I'm just trying to look at this woman is very, very old, and I'm trying just to get her good health care. And you know like I said the accident with the seals didn't help. She was walking in her walker we were down by the the thing and the seals came up to us and they started attacking us. Where and was she this found her back in the hospital? Where, where was this? In St. John's a few weeks ago.
1: Like down in Kitty Vidy or something? Yes. And what did what did the seals do, sorry?
12: Well, we were, we were it was Passover, so we were eating some matzah, and some of the matzah was a little stale, so we were throwing it out to the birds. And then the seals came up, and they started, you know, I guess you're not supposed to feed the wildlife, but they got very, very in our business. And Like I said, my, my mother, she's in the, the walker, and the walker, all the tennis balls fell off the walker, and it was just a mess, and I was looking for help, and I don't know why people, you know, I don't know if it's because of the yarmulke or the curls, but it just seemed like people weren't really helping me.
1: Well, that's unfortunate. I'm sorry to hear that. And you don't hear much in the way of that type of aggressive interaction with the SEAL. So, are you intending on staying? You say you'd like to get back to New York. What do you do for a living, Saul?
12: Right now, I work. In finance, with in, 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 in down in uh, with the government and Wall Street a little bit in between. I'm an actuary, um, so I do work in New York, so I do have to come here time to time. Um, I would like it. It's, it's a very beautiful. I mean, it gets cold. It's a little too cold for my liking, you know. Um, I'd I like to be in Miami, honestly. that That's where I would want to go. But, uh, you know, in, in, in the summer, oh, you can't beat this place, you know
1: yeah i mean it's a beautiful province it does take some getting used to the weather i mean here it is the 17th of april and it's snowing uh so yeah i I totally get that
12: it's very confusing with Celsius, too. I, I, for the first few times I was up here between the Fahrenheit and the Celsius, my God, I didn't know how to dress.
1: <laughs> I appreciate you making time for the show, Saul. Hopefully everything's going to go okay with your mom.
12: Well, thank you, and, and God bless you and your family, and I hope you guys are doing terrific.
1: Yeah, we are. Let's hope the same for you. Thank you, Saul.
12: Uh, thank you.
1: Take care. All right, bye-bye. Uh, and take this for how it's intended. No trouble to tell where Saul is from, hey? You know, that New York accent, I actually really like it. I know not everybody does, whether it be the Southern drawl or the New York, New York accent or the Boston drawl, especially from the southeast. Uh, pretty amazing stuff. On that front, regarding Boston, I had an email uh, during the news, coincidentally. Someone asked me, do I know of any runners from this province who are participating in the Boston Marathon, which I think is today, Right is it today dave i believe it is so if you know and i'll relay the information to this particular emailer uh if you know somebody by name that would be helpful that's actually participating in boston because generally speaking we have a good contingent of people from this province that make their way to boston to compete in one of the world's five major marathons let's see if i can think of them off the top of my head boston new york chicago Tokyo and Berlin, I'm pretty sure, are the five majors. And we've had people from the province compete in all five, which is also pretty extraordinary, including this one lady. I can't remember her name off the top of my head. She just started running 10 years ago. And 10 years later, has run in all the five majors, which is pretty remarkable stuff. And I think folks who could just hit the ground and run a marathon anyway is pretty superhuman. I can't imagine being able to do it. I still feel like I'm still running the Telly 10 route. And I did that maybe five years ago or what have you. I'm not built for it, but some people find great solace in going for a run. And I heard Jolene Grimes during the newscast say that there is indeed uh, a strike coming. So PSAC, the Public Service Alliance of Canada says, unless there's a deal brokered in the very next few hours, we will indeed see 155,000 public sector workers on strike. I didn't hear any reference to work-to-rule protests or rolling strikes. It sounded very much to me that they were all striking at the same time. Another email asked if we know there's going to be any impact on the seniors' benefits flowing. And I don't know the answer to that, but I can find out. But yeah, there's going to be a distinct impact to government services while 155,000 public sector workers are on the street. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, plenty of time for you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Well, it's been suggested that maybe I just got pranked. Maybe so. I mean, I've been pranked before. I remember once uh, Sheila Crosby, or pardon me, Sheila Williams called, her Sheila Crosby, her brother's name is Crosby Williams. Sheila Williams called and got me really good here one morning, not so long ago. So uh, if Saul had pranked me, then good on you, Saul got me all right and in reference to uh, another email question regarding the 13 filipinos coming to work in a crab processing plant hickman's harbor on random island whether or not the company brought them in as opposed to advertise the jobs for the locals no one in the area has said that that's the case so i don't know the answer to that question but the whole issue regarding temporary foreign workers, especially when we're talking about agriculture, I think is something that we have to explore a little further. If there's more and more greenhouse and hydroponics being used to produce food in this country, a temporary foreign worker is sort of a weird title or tag to give someone, because the greenhouse, of course, the upside is, it's a year-round operation. And in the country, about 40% of Canadian farmers are expected to retire in the next 10 years. 66% of farmers don't have a succession plan, according to a recent report coming from RBC. Uh, You say go to line two, Dave? Okay, let's go to line number two. Morning caller, you're on the air.
11: I think you've been pranked, Patty, by the Jerky Boys, it sounds like. Could be. I was a big fan of them in the 80s, and that's what it sounds like.
1: Yeah, I don't know, but I tell you what, if that was a straight-up prank, then that particular person has got that Jewish New Yorker accent down pat.
11: Yes, but he's good. You should look him up. It's hilarious. <laughs> and what's, what's the hey, name? Even Frank Clinton in the White House. Okay. So uh, you say the Jerky Boys? Yeah, the Jerky Boys. Uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> have to look them up. Uh, I'll have a look. Why not? Yes, you, you, you'll you do a lot of that.
1: And so what kind of content do the Jerky Boys produce? What do they do?
11: Uh, oh, they, they just make all prank calls to whoever they can. And, of
1: course, radio stations
11: had they, long... They even, he even had a movie out in the 80s. Okay, I'm not made familiar. made a movie about us. Okay. Yeah, and you could even see him pranking Frank uh, Bill Clinton.
1: I think it's awesome. Yeah.
11: After the show, I'll have a look. Yes, you'll have to. You'll enjoy it.
1: <laughs> I'll w- I look for something to enjoy this afternoon. Thanks a lot for this. <laughs> You're welcome, bud. Thank Take care. You. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Yeah, Bye. okay. Maybe it was a prank. I don't know. And nor am I too worried about it on where the other, to be honest with you. I do think there's something suspect with some out of date matzah being the reason for a seal would come after you but hey what do i know oh man that was really good anyway back to agriculture and farming in this province you know there was the offering of some 64 or sixty-five thousand hectares of land for farming opportunities whether it be root vegetables all the way through, maybe even some cattle business models that have been brought forward. Snails pace moving on those particular issues. But there's a thought offered by many people in many corners that the province isn't really fully outside of expanding the opportunities for agricultural business models because of some of the stalls we've heard about, whether it involves crown lands or what have you. But, you know, the government has told us that they have, on some fronts, doubled Uh, food production here in some sectors for some foods i don't know how many people see that but i think it was really good important work done by the food producers forum and their various partners to give us a better understanding of just how much food is produced here in the province because we all used to go with the same numbers right we only produce 10 percent of what we consume which i think now that we've got more data available really feels like that's at the big retail level and that very likely is probably very accurate. But now they've gone out and they've figured out through a bunch of surveys that the amount of food produced, whether it be backyard farming or homesteading, traditional farms as we know them, is way more than the 10%. The 10%. And that's helpful information because without that kind of data in hand, then it's hard to enact appropriate public policy. But we don't seem to be anywhere where we need to be regarding food production here in the province because we know there's something like a seven-day supply if we were ever cut off and i know that sounds quite extreme but it's possible and the issue regarding the trends and greenhouses you know it's happening right across the country not so much here i know we have some hydroponics that are ongoing mr Nery down in the cove and uh there's actually a hydroponics association now and that's a local gentleman who's at the helm of that so this is somewhere where we can move away from the seasonal problems that we have and have year-round production of more and more goods that we all buy and eat and love david what do you want me to do here okay let's go to line number one good morning paulson Rendell. you're on the air
13: Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning, Mike? That's kind. How about you? Good, thanks. Good. Tolson here her name, Patty, I just want to give you a call there uh, thinking this is uh, volunteer week, and, and again, only for volunteers, we wouldn't be where we're at today. Absolutely. And I know we're in a mess uh, in different circumstances, in different ways with governments, uh, whether it be municipal, federal, or provincial. But uh, only for volunteers, buddy, she wouldn't work at all.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you just stand back and think about what volunteers are doing across almost everything that we touch, then obviously it's very real. So, you know, when we spoke to Colin Corcoran from the Community Sector Council, even just the fundamentals of acknowledging the work of volunteers, whether it be formally, and he says like the high five or a thank you, it does go a long way. As someone who has done a lot of volunteering, it's not all simply about what you're doing for others. There's a lot of feel good comes from doing a bit of volunteering as well. So if we see the shortages, like Volunteer Canada says some sixty five percent of organizations don't have enough volunteers, thirty five percent of those organizations have had to cut some of their services. That's bad news for all of us.
13: That's very right, petty but only like you said, only for volunteers. It'd be a hard should be a hard state. It's bad enough now but it should be ten times worse. But anyhow, the moral of the story is, like I said, uh, I certainly appreciate volunteers. I do a lot of volunteering myself, and that's the name of the game. Keep it up and keep the good work going for volunteers. But i also like to meet, uh, mention now, Paddy, about the spring break and the snow going and that, and the mess of garbage around everywhere. And, oh. and uh, I've mentioned this to you hundreds of times before, and it's just crazy to see. I'm just going to give this as an example. People might laugh at what I'm going to say, but it's a fact if you were walking along the road and you seen 20 recyclables, would you bend down and pick them up? No, probably not. But would you pick up a, a toonie or a looney if he's in there?
11: Yeah,
1: well, it, The answer is yes, they'd pick up the toonie, maybe not pick up the recyclables and take it the extra step to cash them in and get the toonie. So, fair point.
13: But the only good thing about it, if you if you picked up twenty recyclables and you took that out of the street or out of the, out of the ditch or out of your playground or wherever you're taking it from, could be your Anglican cemetery in your community or your Roman Catholic or whatever. It could be anywhere because recyclables do blow around. And I mean, it would make a a, a lot uh, to go to work, clean up the environment.
14: Yeah.
1: Look, I mean, I know that this might be beating a dead horse, but. Here in this city, now it's nice to see the snow going away because at this time of year, it's all just black, ugly snow banks that are, for the most part that we see around, so it's nice to see it go by the wayside. But then comes our annual problem of what the receding snow reveals and that is a ton of garbage. A ton. I just sometimes am so embarrassed with just how rotten this city can be sometimes and it's just awful. And people know better. You know, and I hear the same old arguments made year over year. Let's just say, for instance, coffee cups or fast food containers that the companies that sold it to us should do more to help clean it up no they don't owe us anything they sold you a product you threw it on the ground you know they didn't say here's your coffee please do indeed throw that on the grass when you're done so it's individual responsibility and yes companies with garbage cans and uh, emptying them in a timely fashion it all plays a role but i just get frustrated to no end with how dirty the place can be
13: Eddie, by the way, I look at it, and I'm going to 68 years old. I see a lot of changes in my life. I can remember here in the town of Hearts Content walking from the lighthouse to the Southern Cove to the powerhouse. And I mean, the way the environment has changed and the climate change is playing a big factor. There's no question about it. No one's going to convince me because I know the difference and see it. I can see it on, on, on this, where the, the ocean has gone up another 8 to 10 feet. It's unbelievable. People just got to have a look at it and size it up. Everything has changed big time.
1: Yeah, that it is, no doubt about it. Uh, appreciate the time this morning, Tolson. What kind of volunteering do you do?
13: Well, I volunteer with Jane Way. I volunteer with different things in the community and things like that. In fact, we've got a volunteer night here in Hertsconhead. A volunteer night tonight, starting at seven thirty in the Rec Centre for anyone's interested in coming into town. Sounds good. Take care and all the best. Yeah, you too, Tolson. All the best to you. Bye now. All Take right. care. Bye. Stay Bye-bye. safe. Yeah, you too.
1: Uh, very quickly before we get to the news break, and then come back for your call couple of people kind enough to send along some Boston Marathon info. Yvonne Martin, she's from St. Mary's. She's in the Boston Marathon, runs it every year, places well in her category, which is the over 60 female category. And then another one comes in for uh, from Kevin. He says, nephew, Jonathan House, originally from Springdale, now living in Bonavista, fa- ran and finished the marathon about 10 years ago. And, yes, I'm sure we have a ton of people from this province down running in Boston today. Let's check in on the Twitter box. Apparently it's been for all intents and purposes, confirmed that I was pranked. (laughs) And so be it. Uh, I thought it was kind of funny, actually, and it's a well-rounded, made-up story. Uh, So apparently that was Johnny Brennan. Johnny is the voice of the Jerky Boys, and he plays Saul, or someone else sent me some more information about it, Saul Rosenberg, a frail, insecure New York Jew who suffers from various, and often comical problems and ailments. So that's pretty good. Johnny, if you're still listening, Thanks for making time for the show. Uh, anyway, stuff like that makes the world go round. Check in on the email. We're at openline.focm.com. Uh, when we come back after the newscast, we're going to be speaking with you. I assume many people have thoughts to share on the pending public sector strike, whether it be in full-throated support of or have questions regarding the services that might be impacted. We have a list that's been generated about where we are going to see some service. Absolutely negatively impacted. Uh, just stands to reason, doesn't it? With 155,000 public sector workers, by the sound of it anyway, will be on the picket line in the next couple of days. Okay, let's go ahead and take a break. Uh, when we come back, still plenty of time to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away.
5: Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Hannah, you're on the air.
15: Hi there, Patty. Hi. How you doing? Excellent,
1: thank you. How are you doing?
15: I'm good. Thank you so much. Um, I am the manager at the Travel Bug in the Bee's Knees downtown, and I was just going to give you a call in response to the last caller who was talking about all the garbage that unfortunately we see everywhere in the springtime. Um, we are actually celebrating the Bee's Knees' fifth birthday this Earth Day, which is Friday, and so to celebrate and also to help clean up the community, we're running a community cleanup all this week.
1: What are you doing? Where are you doing it?
15: Absolutely. So it's wherever you want to participate. So basically, all you have to do is the next time that you're out walking your dog, taking the kids to school, whatever it may be bring along a garbage bag with you and fill it up with any litter in your local community that you can find. And then if you take a picture of the bag of garbage and tag us on Facebook or Instagram and use the hashtag bees knees cleanup 2023, you could win a $50 gift certificate.
1: You know, it's unfortunate that we have to dangle a carrot along with these things, but sometimes that you know, puts people in the mood to bring along a garbage bag and do a bit of cleanup. And if everybody just played a very minor role, we'd solve this problem in a jiffy, whether it be responsibility to not throw away the garbage in the first place and or to just play a role in cleaning the place up. I think we'd all be better off if the place wasn't as dirty as it normally is.
15: I totally agree. You know, um, at the bees knees, we always, of course, we do, we're zero waste, store so we do our very best to help people make choices that can reduce their waste and you know contribute less to the problem in general but on top of that the best thing that we can do is just take a minute out of your day to try and clean up a little bit of your local community even if that's just you know picking up the extra tim's cups that people feel feel the need to throw out their windows
1: (laughs) and for uh, i'll I'll add this one in there and for pet owners if you know that you left behind some goodies uh, throughout the course of the winter maybe play an active role in getting that cleaned up as well Uh, what do you do at the uh, at your business to be zero waste?
15: Yeah, so unfortunately, the whole business itself can't be totally zero waste, but we do have uh, lots of zero waste products. So things from you know. Uh, applies to make your dishwashing routine more zero waste so reusable um, scrubbers and dish brushes sponges made out of coconut husk that sort of thing we also have refillables as far as dish detergent um package lists, um dishwasher cubes you know all that good stuff we've also got zero waste shampoo conditioner lotions pretty much anything you could think of uh, we try to just make it easy for people to make those switches that you might not think of right off the bat, but that can add up over time to make a really big difference. Well,
1: that's a good thing. So all you have to do is grab a bag, do some cleanup, take a picture. What was the hashtag again for the your first? The hashtag
15: Facebook page? is Bees Knees Cleanup twenty twenty three.
1: I think it's awesome. Congratulations to the company for getting involved trying to clean the place up
15: yes absolutely so hopefully everybody can take some time out of their day and do their best to help you know clean up what we see in the springtime and hopefully keep that from happening so much in the future
1: here here good to have you on hannah
15: thanks for this yes absolutely thank you so much patty take care
1: bye-bye all right bye-bye uh wrong button uh let's keep going here let's go to line number two daryl you're on the air
16: oh hi patty how you doing today doing okay how about you Oh, I'm doing good, thanks. The sun is out, the weather has uh, improved, so it's all good. <laughs> uh, Patty, one want to talk about today, there. I want to talk about, like, you know, uh, uh, the cost of the living and all that stuff. And I, I overheard a conversation there recently, and uh, uh, I was just among a few other people there, and... Uh, and they're talking about affordability. And I'll never forget this one lady was more or less saying that, well, I can't the cost of gas and everything, I can't afford to go to my cabin no more. And then this gentleman was saying, well, you know, I can't even afford to go to work anymore. And you know, and uh, yes, inflation has probably uh, came down, so forth, whatever. But when you still go to the grocery store now or uh, the gas pumps, everything's still going up and up and up. And uh, if we don't find remedies for all this, I mean, how's our economy going to uh, rebound from everything? Uh, you got gas going up, and uh, now you got this like carbon tax coming into effect. I believe first of July, if I'm not mistaken. I stand to be corrected on that one. So, how are we going to get the cost of living down when everything still keep on going up and up and up? Now, I know interest rates have stabilized right now, but that could flip flop every either direction, but. I mean, if we, uh, uh, when you look at the whole problem in general, uh, the government it was the cause of all of it, the federal government, because when they shut down everything uh, due to COVID, this triggered everything. The, the chain supply effects, the cost of living, uh, in, inflation went up and is dropping down. Uh, so uh, when you look at it, if me and you make a mistake, yes, we got to correct our own mistake. In this case, uh, the federal government, when they, we shut everything down, this is the cause of what's everything happening today. So most of those well, shutdown, think- most of those shutdown issues are provincial, to be honest. Um, well, well, it's a combination. Yes, I agree. with you. Yeah, provincial, federal, whatever the case may be. Yeah, yeah that's that's true enough. But uh, but the thing is, we're going to have to start uh, coming up with remedies, uh, like how to uh, to defeat this, because like, seem like it's is on is ongoing and, and the only way you could beat it is that people need more income and, and that's gonna be the bottom line because I because there's nothing coming down. You know what th- funny
1: price, enough you know? funny enough though when you talk about people need more money is yeah. if we're looking at it through the lens of inflation uh, that's yeah, like Tiff Macklin who's the governor of the Bank of Canada last Wednesday he gave a an address to the country about some of the monetary policy issues and decisions that he and the bank have made mm-hmm. and it's really right. curious stuff because he suggests for the most part and reading between the lines on some of these things is that more money in people's pocket is not going to be help at all with inflation it's actually one of the contributing factors to inflation is increased money supply and he also goes a step further and th- says for the most part that there's too many people in the country employed which is such a weird thing to say out loud because cost of living and inflation why they feel the same are kind of two different things because in the world of inflation which we have very dishonest conversations at the political level about inflation which I think really hurts everybody but you know there's a bunch of contributing factors demand pull of course, when the price, when more buyers want a product, then the service that the seller has available, that is a contributing factor to inflation. Cost push on the other side. Costs go up on the supply side equation because when prices rise, costs go up on the supply side. Then it's, of course, increased money in people's pockets. There is rising wages, contributes to inflation. Uh, monetary policies, of course, regarding interest rates, which we can't just rely on that alone. And then devaluation plays a role in the contributing factors to inflation. The real confusing part for many Canadians, is that overall inflation has stabilized-ish, and they think we're back to 3% by the end of the year, 2% early next year, and some thoughts about recession seem to have been tempered, but... Food inflation is where I think everyone gets pummeled because we know, yes, the price of gas is absolutely a problem. There's a variety of factors involved in the price of a liter of unleaded gasoline or diesel or home heating fuels or what have you. But it's going to the grocery store. So if inflation is around 5 ish percent, but in the grocery store, it's still almost around 11 percent, that's where Canadians are getting battered because we can change our behaviors on a variety of fronts, but not with eating. You got to eat.
16: Well, you got to eat and you got to have fuel. But I don't, I don't agree with the the, the governor of the Bank of Canada. I mean, if, if people don't have enough money to buy things and you need your necessities, so how are they going to do it? Uh, the food banks are going broke, uh, and so uh, I look at the governor of the Bank of Canada. What's his salary? He's getting into the millions. So that, that's fine for people like him. They, they live comfortable, and the CEOs and, and the, the the governors of the Bank of Canada, whatever, to sit on the board, they're doing fine. Uh, all these people are getting millions of dollars. So maybe, we, you know, so that's that's fine for them. They can say this and say that and whatever. That's fine. They're living good. But most people now, you, you turn on the news daily or watch whatever, you, you, you hear it yourself, certainly. So, I mean, people, got, if they don't have the money to buy things, well, what are you going to do? So if he says that you, you, if you make more money, he's going to add to the problem, it's not going to add to the problem.
13: It, it, it does, got to though. to
16: try to solve the problem because people are going to have, to, have the, the, the opportunity to be able to buy things. If they don't have the money bought due to the cost, then you've got more severe problems. So there's, and there's like domino of, effects.
1: <clears throat> there's kind of two different things, though. I get the point you're making. But there's right. no question more money does not help inflation. It can help with cost of living pressures to be able to afford to fill up your vehicle right. and buy some groceries. But more money in the system is absolutely one of the contributing factors to inflation. It's, you know That's why politicians will say, well, it's all Justin Trudeau's fault because of CERB and those types of things and different mm-hmm. pots of money being flowed out from the province and or the federal government. So more money right. does indeed contribute to inflation. Tiff Macklem, as the governor of the Bank of Canada, makes in and around a half a million dollars a year, not into the millions. And that's not justifying anything. It's, that's just how much those people... To make
16: but yeah. well yeah, well you yes you are you' are right we 're sort of caught between a rock and a hardcore, and every time you turn the news there 's uh, millions or billions of dollars going out the door, so is that helping inflation no and and, and then you got people on the streets that are starving, taxpayers that are suffering and and whatever, so I I don't know, it's it's a a hard uh, remedy to solve, but I'll just make a quote from Warren Buffett. He said, the only way to beat inflation is people need more uh, income. (laughs) <laughs> so, so what, So what? What is the remedy to it? What? What are we? How, how are we going to uh, combat all this? When you look at it,
1: yeah, uh, more money is a cost of living issue, and it's not because I know anything about it. And the carbon tax, say you pointed out, we've had a couple of guests on to talk about the implication of a carbon tax means right. for things like inflation, and it's minimal. There's way bigger contributing factors to it, and there's nothing oh. easy in this world. And complex issues need complex solutions. It's not all just about interest rates but I mean for yeah. Tiff Macklin to say you know we have too many people working which is contributing to inflation it's just a hard pill to swallow it's just well, hard well, to know how to take
6: that kind of stuff
16: well and it is a hard pill to swallow I agree with you but you look at the, okay the interest rates went up and went up and went up now you're getting record uh, bankruptcies and, and, and because of the interest rates because they want to bring down inflation so all of a sudden they stalled the interest rates now because they seen what effects us have otherwise which is not for for the better so now were stabilized now inflation has dropped down a bit now i'm not sure exact figures today but i mean uh, but now you got energy costs going up like this carbon tax on so like for like for the, the tax go on top of tax and tax that that can help inflation or error or the economy because now people got less buying power because you got to pay more for fuel then you you got to cut back so the economy got to retract Buying power is an
1: interesting one. That's that's when we talk about what people call the real wage. (laughs) It's one thing for me to get a wage increase of 2%, but if cost of living and inflation makes it more like I needed 6% to keep up and retain the similar buying power or the real wage, as I guess economists will refer to it, has been an absolute problem here in the country. (laughs) There's obviously no doubt about it. I haven't had a raise, and I would suggest most people listening haven't had a raise to combat cost of living. Maybe your annual 1% or 2% that some people have built into their contract their contracts but right. it's not saving me from the the pain of going to the grocery store daryl appreciate the time
16: thanks yeah. for the call no again thanks uh, patty and hopefully things will work out for the better down the road we just uh, just take it day by day that's all we can do i guess appreciate the time all right thanks again for your time patty all the best to you. you too bye-bye take care thank you
1: yeah Bye. inflation we have straight up i mean we know what goes on inside a political discourse, and whatever works for one party or another, one politician or another, that's what they'll say. That's what they'll do. They take some of the most complicated issues, try to boil them down to being very fundamental and very uh, easily settled or solved, when in fact that inflation conversation has gotten away from politicians. It simply has. You know, we'll put focus, whether it be on grocery store profits and stuff, and absolutely we have to have those conversations. But to pretend that inflation only happens in Canada at this level is kind of silly too, right? It's not helping us because if we had if more and more people had more and more understanding of those types of issues, we'd be able to drive politicians to actually try to settle and solve them as opposed to win a couple of votes because unless we understand exactly what's contributing to it, it's hard to do much about it, right? Let's take our final break in the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let's go line number one. John, you're on the air.
14: Hi, Patty. Uh, thanks for your opportunity to uh, to get on and, uh, and say a few things. Sure, go ahead. Um, I just moved back uh, from Ontario, and uh, what I've noticed, my my, I, I spent 30, 33 years away, and uh, just moving back, I my, uh, I'm just shocked. Uh, with the cost of living here and to be honest I don't know if I'll be able to I came back to help out my parents and all that kind of stuff as they get older but I don't know if I can stay here the cost of living here is just too expensive it just absolutely blows my mind
1: on what side Sorry. give me some specifics like are we talking about food or energy or what are we referring to
14: well, the, the the easiest one is uh you know not to put a plug in for Costco, but you know, you go to Costco in Ontario, you come out with a cartload load of groceries for for uh for, for 150 bucks. You you come out of uh Costco here with the same groceries, it's 200 bucks. Um, and, and the cost of fuel, of course. So, you know, that's that's no surprise there. I mean, you're you're looking at 20 cents a liter more for fuel here. Um, so you know, one of the things that boggles my mind is this carbon tax. You know, as this carbon tax gets implemented, it drives the cost of fuel up. I'm not saying anything new here. Uh, the co- that drives the cost of goods and services up, um, and it's worse for Newfoundland because everything is shipped in here. Um, it, it's it's catastrophic, and and I'm I'm not sure how <laughs> I'm not sure how Newfoundlanders do it. I really don't.
1: Yeah, the uh, price of gas in Ontario is around a buck 60. I paid almost a buck 80 the other day.
14: Yeah, it's it's insane. And I'm not sure that that um, you know, raising people's wages is the uh, is the solution to that. Uh, uh like you pointed out that's it's it's just, you know, this chain reaction that it's 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 uh, self-perpetuating, you know, everything everything keeps going up. Um, Yeah.
1: (laughs) I mean, people need more money to deal with cost of living issues. They absolutely do. But I think what we do maybe a little bit too often is we use cost of living and inflation as the same thing. When, in fact, they're kind of two different things here. Yes, more money can help me afford groceries easier. There's no doubt about it. That's straight up mathematics. But there is no question that increased money supply it's part of inflation it it just is so but it feels helpful on one front and doesn't help on the other front now would I be more concerned with being able to afford groceries than what the inflation rate is absolutely because at five percent or four percent I don't really feel a whole lot of difference inside of there but I sure realize if I had another 50 bucks a month or 50 bucks a week grocery bills wouldn't be quite as painful
14: oh for sure for sure absolutely And uh, I mean, the other thing, too, is, you know, when you look at the job situation uh, here in Newfoundland, um, another thing that I think I think greed has set in in this province a little bit since uh, at least since I I lived here. And now that's a long time ago. But, you know, when you when you you're driving down the road and every third car is a BMW or a Mercedes or an Audi, um, you know, when you and you drive around town, you see these six hundred, seven hundred, eight hundred thousand dollar homes. Uh, that also kind of boggles me you know for for a province that 's strapped for cash um, you know we have you know this uh we, we need jobs and all this kind of stuff. Where is this money coming from, and and how are people able to ref- to afford these things? And and you know, there's a lot of uh, this this debt uh, insolvency and all this kind of stuff now, and that just makes it worse for everybody because who pays those on on those defaulted loans? Well, the people who pay their loans actually pay for the people who don't. You know, in
1: some form, yeah. Um, the economy not bad everywhere though, that, and that's another thing. You know. We can talk about the province's economy and the debt load of the province versus the health of the economy are, are also two different things to me. And the whole uh, insolvencies and whatnot, Canadians are in a bad spot. We, the highest household debt, excluding mortgages, is being experienced by every single province, and that becomes unmanageable. The last numbers I saw was uh, we pay out a dollar eighty three to cover our debt versus every dollar we bring in. That's unsustainable. That's the actual definition of upside down. That's what the mortgage crisis was about the subprime crisis in the states we find ourselves in a wicked old spot with household debt load
14: yeah for sure uh, absolutely i agree with you anyway as a final point i, I just uh you know i hope uh, i hope the next government or whatever government that gets in um realizes that the, this carbon tax I, i'm sure every dollar that the government gets from the carbon tax doesn't go towards environmental issues and and initiatives um uh, I, I just hope that that they look at this carbon tax and say, is that sustainable? You know, is that going to is that going is create, is is helping the environment going to help us all out in the short run, the long run? Yes. But we've got to look at look after ourselves in the short run as well.
1: Yeah, there's an interesting story now. The numbers are out regarding greenhouse emissions uh, in 2022-21 and pre-pandemic comparisons. And it's something I'll do a bit more reading on this afternoon. Maybe if anyone wants to talk about it, we can do it tomorrow. But I appreciate you making time for the show, John. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much, Patty. Take good care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, the uh, greenhouse emission conversation, and what works, what does not. You know, price on pollution was once the go-to mechanism agreed upon by, you know, there's no such thing as uh, full consensus with economists, but that was the The general leaning was that the price on pollution is a good way to go about this, but of course the most recent federal budget and incentives for clean tech manufacturing and whatnot makes sense as well. Let's go to line two. Last word to Chris. Chris, you're on the air.
17: Hello, oh, Patty. I couldn't help but call. Anyway, your last callers were wondering how most Newfoundlanders are doing this. Well, most Newfoundlanders probably have a slice of toast in the morning and they have one meal a day. And that's been happening for several years. And uh, I think it's time that something be done about it. But i got one question for you, Paddy. I was just wondering, when you shopped or your mother and father shopped at the co-op grocery stores years ago, did they do better... Than what we're doing today with shopping that the other two or three that's around?
1: Uh, I don't know really how to answer that question, but I don't think we. So much has changed. You know, for starters, the way that people paid into their pensions and had one job all those years, you could get into a, a middle class home with a one salary, you could have yourself a car. So the things have just changed, right? The price of getting an education has changed. So I don't know how, really how to answer that, but we're no better off.
17: Well, I think we should bring back the co-op grocery stores myself because uh, I know myself, I shopped there, my uncle shopped over there and things and prices were a lot cheaper than what you find today. And uh, like I said, Petty Boy, it's not an easy road for any Newfoundland and Labradorian in these past few years and I just hope that, you know, something changes because, like, I mean, you know, without nutrients in the body, our healthcare system, you know pays the place, and we can see it.
1: Absolutely. You know, the, the social determinants of health are the, probably the biggest conversation that we don't have enough of. I agree with you, Chris. Yeah. Well, anyway,
17: Paddy, bye. I'll rest again. You too. Take, take care. care. <laughs> All right.
1: Bye-bye. All right. That was the last word. Uh, we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Paddy Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.